Ladies and gentlemen, before the show gets started, I want to take a moment to ask you that if you have the means to do so and are willing to give to a good cause, please go to aurorarise.org. That's A-U-R-O-R-A-R-I-S-E dot org to support those who were affected by the Aurora theater shootings back in 2012. These people still need help, and hopefully we can provide that assistance. Thank you very much and enjoy the show. Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast contains coarse language, strong thematic themes, talk of history and context, terrible imitations of Hollywood figures, and an unbashed love of Hollywood's golden age. It also contains the ramblings of an unstable dork who has too much time on his hands. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the program. Okay, Zach, you're on the air. What a fellowship. What a joy divine Leaning on the everlasting arms What a blessedness What a peace is mine Leaning on the everlasting arms Leaning on Jesus Leaning on Jesus Safe and secure from all alarms. Lean on Jesus, lean on Jesus, leaning on the everlasting Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Many great sights await inside the picture palace of the past, and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside. So hurry and get your seats. Tonight, the Ballyhoo endeavors the massive task of covering early cinema's most revered classic, a film that has spawned a massive imitation and homage, which in itself was born out of homage and imitation. It took a first-time director, a villainous presence, a visage of pastoral pastiche, an angelic glow of an aged star, and the simplest story of good versus evil to culminate into one of the most influential pieces of film that carries the longest echo. Yet what had would have been a tr- cinematic triumph to us today had a long journey down a winding river of fate that extended farther than even the travails of young John and his sister. For it would be many a year before the film would be remembered as fondly as it will today as we dive into Charles Lawton's 1955 Mother Goose Nightmare, The Night of the Hunter. So see the show and stay behind for a discussion to delight the earbuds.
told you to throw it in the river, did he? I can hear you whispering, children, so I know you're down there. I can feel myself getting awful mad. Here is all the passion and suspense, the heart-pounding warmth of the best-selling novel that gripped millions. Wake up! Come on! Superb, unforgettable performances by an extraordinary array of talent. Figured I was gone, huh? Run. Hide in the staircase. Run quick! Ruby, get! What do you want? I want them kids. I'm giving you to the count of three to get out of here, then I'm coming across the kitchen shooting. The combined powers of Paul Gregory and Charles Lawton brought the King Mutiny Court Martial to Broadway. Now the screen receives that same creative, electrifying impact. The night of the hunter. Now that you've seen the show, we will get to the talk of the day. Yes, The Night of the Hunter is the film any and all film buffs will insist you watch, and for marvelous reason. Utilizing elements of silent cinema past with the carefully crafted tale of innocence lost, Charles Lawton's only screen directorial outing would become a template for filmmakers that range the gamut from artistic triumph to unique commercial aesthetic. But the film's making and release in its time proved that it would show disappointment and find only salvation thanks to groups of film lovers that willed it into success that carries to this day. How important is Night of the Hunter? Where do we see it in today's and tomorrow's cinema? Well, we shall break down this story of love and hate, but we cannot do it with just our own tattooed hands. With us on this journey of cinematic chatter is a critic, film historian, programmer and host of the Crested Butte Film Festival, podcaster for the show The Superlatives Podcast, and the creator of the upcoming podcast series of History of You and Five Films. He is also the man who will tell you all about Hitchcock's rope, and if you ask him nicely, he will break down the importance of 2019's Brightburn. Please welcome Jack Hanley. <laughs> uh, what a marvelous introduction. Thank you for allowing me to be part of uh, not only this amazing podcast that I love so so well, but also to talk about a film that privately you know I geek on perhaps more than any other. So yep, it, yeah, I, it's a great privilege to be here. You think it, it, people have seen me posting um Twitter images of it for for a while, especially after like I I had bought the film on Blu-ray a few years back, and I'd I'd seen it once before in film school, but I didn't like I I I didn't go back to it as often as I should have. Now it's become much more of an obsession with me. But you do take it to another level, so of course we <laughs> needed to have you aboard for this. Um, but yeah, this is uh this this is a this is a film that I I I think you hear about it before you ever see it on the grounds of a slew of American new wave filmmakers and uh, 80s into the 90s independent filmmakers. And there's obviously a lot of influence that we'll talk about down the line, but let's get let's get this out of the way. You're not new to the Ballyhoo per se because you were on the Shamley Silhouette twice, first covering the psychological aspects of Hitchcock in terms of how he dealt with murder and mayhem and lurid tales. Um, and then you also helped us tackle the subject of Marnie. So for the Night of the Hunter, thankfully, the only tough subject matter we'll be discussing is the story of the film itself and not the problems behind the <laughs> 
<laughs> it'll be a pleasant it'll be a pleasant podcast in, in such respects yes exactly. exactly which which by the way the the marnie episode of shamley was very well received because obviously marnie is a production that is riddled with problems from a modern context and also just the film itself is is a difficult watch and a difficult comprehension but uh, the uh, I was actually just a guest on Pop Culture Brews podcast, um, a sober edition, which was fun, uh, talking about Sherlock Holmes. But uh, one of the first things out of Andrew's mouth was how much he loved the the Marnie episode. So it's not just me; it, it also extends to Mr. Jack Hanley. Now, uh, well, it was it was it was marvelous to be talking about it with you, and that's one of my favorite podcast appearances to date. So. Thank you again for allowing us to try to duplicate this with another amazing film. Well, we're going to duplicate it and we'll and maybe we'll one up it. But before that, we do need to introduce the Ballyhoo to you. So you are a you're a film critic historian. Um, you've you've started work. You started work on this wonderful podcast called The Superlatives, where you and your co-host Shay Westcott broke down the uh, the the newer releases and older releases. And during the pandemic, you guys provided a good cinema survival guide uh, for things. Um, I contributed a piece to this, but like mainly, like you guys introduced me to some damn good titles. Like Les Miserables from 2019 is a movie that I don't think I would have gone to had I not heard you guys break it down. And that's a movie that ended up carrying massive echoes into June of last year. Um, uh, not to say the least of which the murder of George Floyd, but also the um, the general aesthetic of the world as it stands today. So I want to ask you uh, as a flat out question, how do you get into golden age Hollywood? Is this a subject that was with you from day one or did you grow into it? Yeah. And I have to, you know, and you and I have also, you know, been, been friends for some time and had many private uh, discussions about the element of discovery, which for us is really about um, what we wanted to make the superlatives about, right? yeah. to, to make it a, a cinematic family in which you align yourself with um, wonderfully intelligent people and basically find out what are the films that influence them? What are the discoveries mm -hmm. that they may have overlooked, right? Because the filmic canon, as it is and such, is um, so broad, and it's it's impossible to really have jumped in full into different areas of the pool uh, in the short course of your lifetime and in your personal edification. Um, it, it brings to mind something where even like I'm ashamed that sometimes a film I come very late to as well. Um, one of those most notably for me was The Swimmer, and then just realizing this is a masterpiece of a film, and I'm just shocked that I've not yet incorporated it into my own education, right? Yeah. But part of that stems from the fact that as much as autodidactic preparation can help you become a better critic, a better cinephile, so much depends on the element of what you're introduced to by like-minded people, mm -hmm. right? And so that was important to us in that podcast. So essentially too, um, and by the way, you're one of our most popular guests on our podcast, <laughs> um, specifically for the element of introducing the golden age of Hollywood, of the passion of which you talk about that. I'm just shocked that Turner Classic Films hasn't already put you in a burlap sack in a van and just uh, kidnapped you already to go <laughs> they, take over They've there. already got a bespectacled gentleman. His name is Ben Mankiewicz. <laughs> yeah, I know. He <laughs> better watch need, out. That's all I'm me. saying. He, he, his days are numbered. Uh, um, <laughs> it's, well, side, side tangent for a second. We, we Amongst our recent discussions has been Mank. And 
uh, full disclosure mm-hmm. to the audience, uh, Jack and I have already talked about a way to talk about Mank because it does relate to this podcast. Um, even though we probably won't, uh, I, I I don't know exactly how it's going to form per se, but like talking about Mank is important and talking about the difference between appreciating a piece of art versus understanding the history as it actually happened. So it is, but it's like, so it's a very weird pool of stuff. And I've still not heard Ben Mankiewicz's chat with Gilbert Gottfried, which I've heard is an amazing episode of his show. But, you know, I'm aware of where Ben Mankiewicz stands for obvious reasons. <laughs> You're right. Just a bit. And, a bit and I don't prejudice. and I don't begrudge him that point of view. Um, but I'm also I'm very much in Peter Bogdanovich's camp and uh, McBride's camp on on mm-hmm. the matter of Mank. Um, in on there on that element, but I'm also in the middle of just like, well, I really like this movie. <laughs> How do I right. do this? But you actually, what one of those things that you brought up in describing the superlatives is that you, you know, you are providing an exposure point, but you don't do it in a way that belittles um, your audience. You are very encouraging and accepting of welcoming people in rather than making them feel bad for like, how dare you've never seen this movie. <laughs> like, right. Which, exactly. It's, it's almost like, I don't know if you were ever familiar with renting, uh, renting videos at the, vid- the fabled video station, um, this clan of intellectuals in Boulder for a time. I went to it once to find a copy of the Armis Brooks film that existed in the fifties that it was only available on VHS. And naturally they didn't have it, even though, something on a website told me they did have it so <laughs> early well, and, early internet searching for him <laughs> <laughs> well and for and for your listeners this was once billed it was an enclave of boulder uh, cinematic intellectualism and it was once billed as the like second perhaps second largest video store in america and um rightfully so they had an amazing selection but uh also <laughs> tended to only employ the most uh like like clerk-esque to the extreme of like pseudo intellectualism. This sounds terrible in retrospect. What I'm what I'm about to say, but no, it was truly it was an idea for them. Um, and if you would have actually seen their application process, right, to even apply to work at the video station, literally there were questions like, which one of Keith Schlowski's three color films should rank dominant and explain? You know, this was part of the process. What? To even get hired at the video station. Oh, well, then my answer would have been, well, I know they are red, blue. <laughs> <laughs> I, right, right. I, I, well, full disclosure, I have not seen the Three Colors trilogy it's in, in its entirety. I've seen sections of this. So. Right, right, exactly, right. Well, and, and if you're also a student of Eastern European historicism, the answer is white. But the funny part was about this place was that um, the, how – so, of course, you can imagine the great links it took to even get employed there, but it created this, this guardianship of then cinematic culture to such a level that you would literally go in and just get insulted by your movie choices, by mm-hmm. the staff, kind of openly with derision, right? Um, and I kind of got, you and I have talked about this too. I had a, so full disclosure, I, I got to meet later on in life and become friends with the, the great critic Roger Ebert. And... Um, one of the things I loved about him, uh, first and foremost, was the fact that when I first met him, he said, oh, I'm so pleased that you were such a fan of me on the show, to which I had to admit, I'm actually a fan of Gene Siskel, but <laughs> you were great too, Roger. Um, and that kind of initially 
uh, formed our first friendship. <laughs> uh, which I'm I like so, your you know, guts, I, kid. I to, to love and cherish over the years. Uh, yeah, I was a Cisco man, I, I must confess. But um, what I loved about that show, and, and particularly what Roger brought to the show, was this idea of a democratic passion for introducing people, like you just said it perfectly, for welcoming people into the fold, for not being judgmental or condescending about the element of discovery, about being introduced to a, a cinematic uh, piece of art that you know you should otherwise feel ashamed for never having encountered on your own. Right. And I pledged from that day on that I, this would be how I would want to bring my approach, not only to criticism, but to, to shows, right? To cultivate this shared idea of sharing knowledge with people and, and the idea of discovery, the simple joy and passion of discovery. Yeah. And, and it's funny because we've had, we've had discussions about Ebert's um, personal opinions on certain titles that we've discussed in, in uh, recent years, recent episodes. Well, one of the big ones where I got on a high horse was um, his response to Gajira is not oh. uh is not even close to accurate to my mind as to what the film is. But, and also I I must confess my bias against him in regards to his review of Night of the Living Dead never being revised or redacted or, or retracted is to me like, uh, is, is inconscionable. Um, but, <laughs> but Ebert did something that, only a few other critics have done, which is he did open up a dialogue for world cinema that is unparalleled. The I never went to it, but the conference on world affairs, um, uh, yes. which is which is where you uh, yes. undoubtedly were associated with. And the thing was, is that he would bring Werner Herzog a bunch, and I regret not going to those because <laughs> number one, Werner Herzog is the scariest teddy bear that's ever lived on this planet. <laughs> Um, but also uh, to hear them break it down, like when I heard about the way the films were broken down, I was younger and I was like, well, that sounds ridiculous. And now I would thrive on listening to that. Oh, my God. <laughs> like I've, 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 I've proven it with coming up on 100 hours of podcasting. <laughs> And we're doing it in audio. We don't even have the screen that Eat Roger had and everything with you guys breaking it down. <laughs> we don't have that. And but also the and there is this element of like there is an inclusion point. The Roger Ebert website that still stands to this day still contains reviews and interviews that do point people toward where they can go from there. And like that and Leonard Malton's uh work, to my mind, have been good mm. entry points. In two different genres. For Roger, it's been world cinema. For yes, Leonard, yes. it has been classic cinema, hands down. Um, and uh, I swear that's the only time I'll name drop Leonard Malton, my my friend from that panel that I did. Um, <laughs> who's, also marvel who's also just marvelous, by the way. He's the yeah, sweetest and, and, human you know, being. I think for me, what really was um, so formulated my, my belief system about this and this idea of discovery was just being a young kid. And turning on, you know, this Saturday morning show that had these two, you know, uh, rumpled, rumpled clothing critics that would just sit in this little theater. And, at, you know, like at eight o'clock in the morning, <laughs> expecting you to know about a Kuwasara film, right? Yeah. And again, the, the, the simultaneous way that they both invoked that you should never be ashamed that you've not yet uh, taken the dive in. Um, it is an introductory way to say, 
here's something out there that will change your life mm -hmm. and please be a part of it. But then as you also uh, uh, broke down uh, and has been a guiding force for the superlatives, then it, simultaneously to never then dumb down the material, right? It's yeah. about that we want you to join us, but you need to come in with a certain level of curiosity, research and discourse to make film appreciation its own art. Yeah. And I and I appreciated that from a young age with, with both of those critics. Yeah, and so like within that golden age Hollywood, um, we typed, we talked a bit about it with Hitchcock because you got introduced to Hitchcock pretty early on through that yes. wonderful ride experience that <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> no, but hey, it, it's, the, the, the lone hatred of my family that had to endure how many times I drug them into the, uh, the psycho experience, uh, should, should make up for it. It doesn't, penance it, enough. it doesn't matter. I didn't get to go, Jack. You don't understand how this works. <laughs> um, but so was was Hitchcock your entry point into Golden Age Hollywood, or did you get exposed to other elements of it, like, say, a Casablanca or a Gone with the Wind or a Wizard of Oz? Right, thing? right. And you know what's funny is we've actually, I don't think, ever spoken about this, but um, uh, I my entry point into a lot of this was um, developed for my early... Uh, film classes at the University of Florida when I began as an undergrad there. And I thought that was going to be my direction was just, you know, film school and film major there. Um, and going to these to these screenings where I was introduced to different films. And if I'm being honest, my first real introduction into the films of that era that completely changed not only my preconceptions of what the golden age of Hollywood meant, but also the possibilities of how it could be so influential and um, complementary to today's world was actually seeing the Lady Eve. I would say that's actually my first major entry point. Wow. And I cannot tell you how much I adored that film, how I sat transfixed that night, being introduced to something that I felt was so charming and smart and magical. And I, to this day, uh, that is a film that if you just want to lure me away and kidnap me into a van, just start showing that on there. I'll, I'll start following <laughs> instantly because I just love it. it it's such a charming film not only from Stanwyck of course and Fonda's performances which are just beautiful but, but Sturgis yeah. yeah Sturgis exactly it's that entry point to seeing something that was so so carefully produced yet at the same time still so full of imagination and charm that I really began say that was one of the first films Zach where I then began to see all right what else have I missed because I've certainly missed a whole hell of a lot of precursor to the entire filmic yeah. canon, right? And and so that that's what launched me. Yeah, and 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 I think it's interesting that Sturgis is the is the 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 kickoff point because I've been open about my experience on this is that like you know I got introduced primarily via Curtiz, um, but also the awkward the awkward side angle of comedies of this era that aren't necessarily critically established. They are they involve radio stars primarily or they involve stars of the era of the film, whether it be Chaplin or, you know, I guess Chaplin would have been the most critically praised that I got into at yes. an early age. Cause like I saw the great dictator when I was 12 and it blew my hair back. And, right, right. um, but, uh, the, uh, to me, the entry point with comedy seems to be a good through line for people because you either get into a via slapstick or you get into screwball or whatever, but you do get into it. Like it, it, that is a good entry point for people 
not too dissimilar from how monsters or gangster films enter points. Like I think broader sure. genre, like nobody really goes, goes. I've never met somebody that's gone in directly courtesy of a drama, like a pure drama. And I don't even count Casablanca in that because it's, it's a drama, but it's also a comedy, but it's also a war, a, a wartime rally call. Like it's a couple different things. One of the reasons why that movie works so well. Like if I had started off with something like gone with the wind, I probably would have been, I, I would have never given this genre a second thought, which is another reason why Gone with the Wind is overrated trash for me. But <laughs> not, you know, that's 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 Gauntlet's being dropped at the onset. That's not that love that's it. for another discussion for another day. Um but I love it. But like love Wizard it. Wizard of Oz was like Wizard of Oz didn't even register to me as Golden Age Hollywood when I first saw sure, it. Like it just sure. registered me as like, hey, there's a guy dressed up like a fucking lion. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, and they're walking down that brick road, and everything's green. It's fucking. Oh, and that witch. Oh, she <laughs> likes those shoes. <laughs> and like, but so within that, because you started off really appreciating this era in undergrad, so would this have been the first time you experienced the terror that is Night of the Hunter? You know, and then, and then, you know, uh, that actually came later on. Um, I was actually um, introduced, I'm try, in, in preparation for this, I was trying to go back in my memory banks and, and decide when I first encountered this film. And I do have to say, I think it was on some Saturday uh, matinee on television um, in Florida, and um, which we'll refer to a little bit later on in here, because I think this, historically, television became a transmission point for this film yep. for so many Americans, right, after it's uh, shameful discarding um, from its original cinematic uh, entry. So yeah, I think I just came upon it through television once. And as we'll discuss, of course, uh, in the podcast was immediately transfixed by the, uh, the, the beautiful and expressionistic and, and often um, campy cartoonish performance of Robert uh, Mitchum. And um, how dare you call it campy and cartoonish, you spawn <laughs> of the devil? <laughs> and I mean that in the most loving way. Okay, it's fine. Thank you. I won't piss on your car. <laughs> <laughs> I was transfixed by it and, and by him. And it, it actually, that's what actually first started making me a, a huge mission fan. And then following him all the way through his through line was mm. this first introduction. But then it was only later on when I began just to try to be very serious about going back, you know, which, which is the point of the superlatives too. I don't know for, for listeners who've never heard our podcast, we came at it from the angle that there needs to be a triumvirate of genre of a classification, if you will, about the three areas that we feel are imperative to be consistently educating yourself on if you really love cinema, right? And want to build your own cinematic education around. And that for us was um, number one, you examine the films of the past, the films that influenced all the films and filmmakers that you are passionate about today, finding the historical legacy of the art form. So revisiting older films um, that perhaps have been lost to the current cultural zeitgeist. Then we do a focus on films that are somewhat recent, but were just drastically overlooked for some reason, right? These hidden gems that may have just slipped under the radar. And then new releases that, um, you know, new artists, new auteurs, that we feel it's essential that the public says, this is the next great thing. So the, those are these three areas. So as soon as I became serious about really going back and, um, and, and getting an, a self-education yeah. in cinema um it was imperative that i that i focused on this time period and i i put in several years i want to say close to a decade of just you know submerging myself into films of the golden age and really just discovering the cinematic roots of, of this art form that i love so much yeah and and 
when you when we when we talk about Night of the Hunter in specifics, the mm. the thing is is that I said at the top in the introduction, we're talking about a film that has brought forth homage and imitation, and it itself is homage and imitation. Yes. And that's, I think, a big reason why the film stood out for people who watched it on television at the time. Because as you already alluded to, this is a film that was primarily discovered through television because of the... The, because of those package deals for films being released at that time. Now, the uh, I will give my brief history of it because it's, you know, like a lot of it will have to do with what we discussed at the end of the episode. But the, f the my history with Night of the Hunter starts primarily with Do the Right Thing, um, <laughs> which the Bill Nunn character, Radio Rahim, does has has uh brass knuckles that say love and hate on them he does his version of the love and hate speech that we see in night of the hunter additionally i didn't pick up on this until after discovering night of the hunter but martin scorsese's cape fear which yes. is very much a night of the hunter homage while mm -hmm. still maintaining the elements of the original Cape Fear from with Mitchum and Peck. And so my introduction to it came vicariously through other filmmakers. Eventually I watch it in film school, um, not in the best of prints. And I, uh, I understood where the influence was, but at the age that I was, I wasn't on the same appreciation level for it. It didn't happen until, like within the last three to four years that I started really appreciating what that film accomplishes. And the, the tragedy of night of the hunter, as we're going to discuss it, which by the way, as discussed, we discussed this off mic, but we will be pretty open about it. Now, this will not be the definitive history of night of the hunter. There is so much to discuss about this movie because for a 93-minute movie, there is a lot of baggage attached to this film in the regards of its creators, and there's a lot of history behind its stars uh, that we will not be able to do each and every individual personality, uh, but we will touch on them where we can. But also, what has been discovered about this film after the fact, not just in the form of production history and documentation, but footage. And I'm not talking about like a deleted scene. I'm talking like... There is there is a way out there right now to watch every reel of film of that movie, not just watching the takes, quote unquote, because we'll talk about how that worked, but also hearing Charles Lawton direct himself. So there is a gamut of information, but we we will be the entry point for people where possible as this show is uh, set up to do. But. Before we even touch the Night of the Hunter, we have to address its biggest hero, um, and that comes in the form of Mr. Charles Lawton. Um, now, Charles Lawton has been discussed before in our presence within the regards of the Shamley silhouette because he did work with uh, Mr. Alfred Hitchcock more than once. Most uh, famously on Shamley, we discussed his hammery, and butcher and bakering in Jamaica Inn. Um, but also, Charles Lawton was quite a figure 
born born in Scarborough, North Riding of Yorkshire. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he uh, grew up within a uh, devout Roman Catholic family, uh, and he was sent off to Stonehurst College, a English Jesuit school. So Hitchcock could relate, be like, yeah, I hung out with those Jesus freaks too. And <laughs> uh, he served in World War One, where he was gassed, serving with the se- the second first battalion of the Huntingdonshire Cyclist Battalion. <laughs> the Cyclist Battalion. Jack, I have a movie I want to make now. The Cyclist Battalion. <laughs> it, it, it writes itself. You know what? Steven Spielberg may have Warhorse, but I have cyclists. <laughs> <laughs> um. Then he started work as a, in a family hotel and participating in amateur theatrics, uh, theatrical settings in Scarborough. And he uh, then becomes a drama student at RADA in 1925, where one of his teachers was a certain invisible man named Claude Rains. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's amazing. The invisible man taught Charles Lawton how to act. And the first thing you need to do is make sure that you're invisible. That's how that's how you'll play the roles. <laughs> um, and also, get... what's amazing is that your reigns gets better every time we do this. <laughs> oh no, yeah. Don't, do you want me to try to do reigns as he actually was, which was a Cockney? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to request this as a birthday present sometime. It's just you uh, spending an evening with dinner only as Claude Rains. Jack, Jack, tell me what di- what did you think of Nomadland? I thought. <laughs> I thought it was very clever, <laughs> but the way <laughs> it talked about the 2008 economic crisis with such drab imagery. <laughs> That's, that, that is not an insult. I love Nomadland. It just wasn't my favorite movie of that year. But uh, the uh, but yes, no. So he, Claude Rains is one of his teachers. He starts his, uh, Lawton uh, begins his first professional appearances at the Barnes Theater in a comedy called The Government Inspector. Then he goes on to the Gaiety Theater. And he goes on to play Tony Pirelli in the Edgar Wallace play On the Spot. Um, and he started a film career in Britain. Uh, yes. And he started taking small roles in silent comedies that starred his soon-to-be wife, Elsa Lanchester. Yes. Um, yes. And Elsa Lanchester, they uh, married in 1929. Uh, and he... He actually would appear with her a lot early on. Uh, and then he goes over to America and starts a New York stage debut in 1931, um, which then gets him offers and his first Hollywood film, The Old Dark House with Boris Karloff and directed by James Whale, uh, the preeminent James Whale, um, whose career was sidelined by the new owners of Universal Studios who didn't know what the fuck they were doing. <laughs> um, and um, that doesn't say that that doesn't mean they didn't make classics. They just didn't know what the fuck they were doing. Um, and uh, he uh, then goes on to play uh, a submarine commander in Devil in the Deep with Tallulah Bankhead, Gary Cooper and Gary Grant. Um, and, uh, the, uh, one of the best films that he does of that same year, uh, is the sign of the cross, 
where uh, he plays Nero for Cecil B. DeMille. Cecil B. DeMille, by the way, will be discussed because I recently discovered Madam Satan, and holy fucking shit. <laughs> yes. You want to talk yes. about all the cocaine going into somebody's system to make absolute <laughs> chaos. That it's, it's Titanic with a Zeppelin. It's fucking ridiculous. I love it. Marvelous. But, yeah, but that's for another day. Um, and then um, he also uh, feature, he, he's also Dr. Moreau in Island of Lost Souls, which is an adaptation of uh, the Island of Dr. Moreau that is uh, yes. is fondly remembered, but uh, Wells himself did not appreciate it. Um, but arguably his big, big prominence to success comes yes. from him winning the Academy Award for Best Actor for the Private Life of Henry VIII. That's um, right. 1933 was the catalyst uh, that launched him and propelled him, really, and allowed for this film to be made, ultimately, yep, that and, we're discussing today. Yeah, and he gets kicked off into a huge career that allows him a lot of creative ownership and the yep. clout to to form his own production company called Mayflower Pictures, uh, which he founded with German film producer Eric Palmer. Um, the film Jamaica Inn comes out of Mayflower Pictures. This is a film that he does. Ba basically, Hitchcock makes Jamaica Inn to, one, to dip his toe into Daphne du Maurier territory, but also mm. to kind of convince du Maurier, I can fucking do Rebecca. You just got to trust me. <laughs> <laughs> and then you see the film Jamaica Inn, and D Daphne du Maurier would be more than within reason to question... <laughs> Hitchcock's, Hitchcock's <laughs> confidence because, un and unfortunately Jamaica Inn is a situation where it's not Hitchcock's fault. One thing about Lawton is that Lawton in the controlling space that he was, uh, 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 his vision predominates in most areas. Uh, he was insistent on certain things in Jamaica Inn that inhibited Hitchcock. Um, it's not that Hitchcock and him came to blows per se, but there is a definite visual scheme about Jamaica Inn that only comes through because Hitchcock manages to sneak some stuff in. Um, it's not too dissimilar from how uh, he ended up having to work with Selznick on Rebecca. Um, mm -hmm. So Lawton, though, uh, he continues to uh, work in films. He's in things like The Barretts of Wimple Street, uh, Ruggles at Red Gap. He was going to play Macabre in, uh, in David Copperfield in 1934, um, but he asked to be released from the part a few days into filming, and he is replaced by W.C. Fields. Yeah, I got to be in Dickens. Yeah, my daddy would have been proud. Uh, and, um, and then in 1939, he actually makes one of his most landmark performances from a pop culture aesthetic because he plays the role of Quasimodo in The Hunchback of Notre Dame, um, yes. co-starring uh, Maureen O'Hara from Jamaica Inn. And Maureen O'Hara was one of his protégés and his students. One thing about Lawton is that he continued to teach acting even throughout all this. Like he was an acting teacher in many mm. respects and brought up a lot of people, not the least of which would be one of the stars of today's film. Um, and, uh, his hunchback is fondly remembered, even though I think film scholars like to go back to Lon Chaney's hunchback, the Quasimodo you see from Lawton is heavily referenced quote wise, like sanctuary, sanctuary. Yeah, that's yeah. Lawton. That's Lawton. That's, that's obviously right. not Lon Chaney. Cause he didn't say anything. He didn't say a damn thing until the man uh, or the, the unholy three and then passed away afterwards. Um, and so, um, he, goes away from these historical parts 
um, and does things like a vineyard owner and they knew what they wanted. Um, and he, uh, a bar owner in the man from down under, um, and a butler in forever in a day, um, from in the forties, he continues to act, um, and he's also starting to do readings and resuscitations in early television from literary works, not the least of which would be the Bible. And this is where we enter in. Um, and additionally, he was doing theater work, but it's these resuscitations of the Bible that pique the interest of Mr. Paul Gregory. Mm-hmm. Paul Gregory, um, son of a butcher from Des Moines, Iowa, he found his way to Hollywood. He becomes an assistant for band leader Horace Heights and pianist Carmen Caravello. Um, one evening at a bar with the Ed Sullivan show playing on the television. He watched Charles Lawton performing readings from the Book of Daniel, and this is specifically the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, which which is the story of the Golden Idol. Um, and the only reason that I remember that story is not because of Charles Lawton. It's because Phil Harris sang a novelty song called Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and when you hear Phil Harris talk about it, it's it makes the Bible sound hilariously entertaining. Um, <laughs> um, and uh, th- th- that's not a dig. On, that's not a dig on the Bible per se. There's a lot of great storytelling that comes out of using the Bible as a source for a guide point. Not the least of which sure. the Coen sure. brothers. Fun fact: they never made a bad movie. And uh, <laughs> uh, but yes, uh, Gregory sees this and goes like, "I got to get that guy on fucking tour." So he goes to the outside of the Ed Sullivan Theater and approaches Lawton. Uh, he says he's got to speak with them, and Lawton's goes, "Talk to my agent, oh boy." And uh, nothing left but the reality of what he could do for Lawton's career. He said, I need to speak to you. If you don't, you'll be throwing away a million dollars. And Lawton goes, say what? And (laughs) uh, you've piqued my interest, boy. Let's let's go to my hotel. Uh, In Lawton's hotel, Gregory emerges at 2 a.m. with a contract set up for a national tour of Lawton doing lectures and recitations from the year 1949 to 1950. That's right. $200,000 accumulated from this tour. Lawton and Gregory carried these funds into productions of 17 plays on Broadway between 1950 and 1960. These included direction of the Kane Mutiny Court Martial, The Marriage Go-Around, and Lord Pengo. Um, now, Kane Mutiny Court Martial is written by Herman Wolk. His agent, Harold Masson, plays heavily into today's film because Gregory went to Harold Masson, said, I'm looking for a property for Lawton because at this time, Lawton's health was starting to decline. The decline of this health was leading to difficulties with the theatrical production. It would seem that a film production in particular would be a little bit easier on him. And what Masson did was hand him properties, amongst which was David Grubb's book, The Night of the Hunter. Lawton read the piece, thought it was fantastic, and Lawton wanted to play the role of the preacher. (laughs) The preacher himself, absolutely. And it had to be explained to Lawton that because of his health, no company was going to insure him as the main performer of the actor. And... It was very clear from the get-go that this was going to be a piece for Lawton to direct. So even though they couldn't insure him as an actor, nothing against insuring him as a director per se, because theoretically at that time, he can replace the director if you need to. But right. thankfully Lawton survived <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, and uh, took himself took this 
he took this project very seriously. Um, amongst the people that he um, wanted to cast for the preacher when he found out, well, I can't play the pre- oh damn. Well, um, how about Gary Cooper? <laughs> And Gary Cooper at this point was up in years. Um, he he would arguably not be past his prime so much as just like it's it's to my mind Cooper Cooper's Cooper's relevance ends in the fifties to a certain extent for me. Well, and Cooper Cooper wound up being just horrified at the prospect of what this could also do to his carefully cultivated image. Yes, well. exactly. He was scared as shit. He's like, Gary, do you want to be in this project? Nope. Are you scared that it might ruin your career? Yep. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this, right, imi- yeah. this imitation of Gary Cooper, by the way, is is <laughs> is steeped in Jack Benny lore. So I'm sorry if anybody's feeling isolated here, but <laughs> uh, I don't care. Now, um, now the other one other option that Gregory suggested was Lawrence Olivier. And when he mm-hmm. said this to Lawrence uh, to to Charles Lawton, Lawton flew into a fucking fit. <laughs> And it's just like, no, 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 you can't do it. No, 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 no. And as it's described, Gregory sent the sent the script to or, or the piece to Olivier. And he was like, well, I'd love to do this in two years because <laughs> I'm I don't know if you know this. I'm Lawrence Olivier. I'm fucking busy. <laughs> <laughs> and that's true. Lawrence Olivier coming off of a hot Oscar for his version of hamlet this guy was busy at this time within this realm of time he'd also be working with marilyn monroe uh and um for more information see uh uh, see my week with marilyn which is a great movie it doesn't sound like it'd be a good movie but it's a good fucking movie and um and uh and as we all know Lawrence olivier is best known to this generation as a guy that kenneth Branagh played now (laughs) um (laughs) and uh now the Eventually, this leads to Mitchum. Mitchum was also working on a film called Not as Strangers or like within the midst of this. And Mitchum came in to read for the part. He responded to the material. And amongst the when when Lawton was auditioning his actors, he was not auditioning them per se. He was getting to know the actors. He got to know them as people rather than just, you know, like, you know, read these lines. If you read them good, we'll we'll hire you. And when he when he what he did was describe the character of Harry Powell as a diabolical shit, which is and this is my favorite Mitchum story of all time, by the way, with his response. Yep. When he said this, Mitchum replied with present present. And I think that's a great way to segue into talking about Robert Mitchum. Yes. Or as most people who watch Family Guy know him as, in shape, out of shape guy from the 50s. (laughs) (laughs) That was my first inclination of him, apart from Cape Fear in 1962, which I saw in conjunction with watching Cape Fear uh, by Scorsese for the first time. Um, Oddly enough... Before we get into his history, let's point this out. He was nominated for the Oscar in 1945 for Best Supporting Actor for a movie called The Story of G.I. Joe. And if he <laughs> if he had lived longer, we could have stuck him in the G.I. Joe movie and had to tie back his career, <laughs> which would have been hilarious. He could have done it instead of Dennis Quaid. I'm just he saying. He could have pulled it off. He could have pulled it off. Not that Dennis Quaid isn't great, but 
let's face it, Mitchum is Mitchum. And Robert Mitchum is born in Bridgeport, Connecticut, August 6, 1917, to a Methodist family. Um, he, uh, he was known as a prankster as a kid, getting into fistfights and mischief when he was 12. His mother sent him to live with his parents in De- with her parents in Delaware. He's immediately expelled from middle school for scuffling with the principal, which knowing Robert Mitchum, I'm wondering what scuffle actually means. Um, and uh, at age 14 in Savannah, Georgia, he was arrested for vagrancy and put on a chain gang. <laughs> God, this man had a life. Um, he... <laughs> He with, after he was expelled from high school, by the way, he left his sister and traveled throughout the country, hopping on railroad cars, taking jobs, including ditch digging for the Civilian Conservation Corps and professional boxing. Now, eventually we will talk about Mitchum and how he pertains to John Houston, because he and Houston kind of had similar upbringings, uh, sure. not not in the exact same, but they both had a flair for the masculine theatrical. <laughs> <laughs> to say that's the, very well put to say the fucking least um and mitchum arrives then in 1936 in long beach california with the hopes of um well his sister gets him to move out here with the hopes of acting in movies and the mitchum family all gathers into california at this point um he started off as a ghostwriter for an astrologer named carol Ryder, um and his sister convinced him to join a theater guild, the Players Guild of Long Beach, where Mitchum worked as a stagehand and a bit player in company productions. But in 1940, he goes back to Delaware to marry Dorothy Spence, then goes back to California, gives uh, gives up his artistic pursuits at the birth of his first child, uh, and then signs steady employment as a machine operator during World War II with Lockheed Aircraft. Um, but the noise of the machinery damaged his hearing. Um, and eventually he suffers a nervous breakdown due to stress and then revives his acting ambitions, uh, provide, pro- working as an extra first. And then his agent gets him an interview with Harry Sherman, the producer of Hopalong Cassidy series of Western pictures that starred William Boyd. Mitchum was hired to play a minor villainous role in a couple of these films between 1942 and 1943. And, Eventually, he impresses Mervyn Leroy during the making of a movie called 30 Seconds Over Tokyo, um, where then Mitchum is signed to a seven-year contract with RKO Pictures. After the moderately successful Western Nevada, he gets into the story of G.I. Joe, which gets him that Oscar nomination that we talked about a few seconds ago. Um, And this was his only nomination for best supporting actor only nomination it's fucking what a crime but what a crime but you know what he makes up for it because he then becomes a very big king in the world of film noir starting in 1944 with when strangers marry working in then undercurrent pursued crossfire and arguably the cream of the crop for noir apart from double indemnity out of the past uh, the Jacques Tourneur classic, which also features Kirk Douglas as an insane person. And, uh, you know, I love talking about Kirk Douglas in the scheme of his work with Minnelli recently. But if you want to watch Kirk Douglas act, you watch Out of the Past. Yeah, um, yeah. And also if you want to watch Teresa Harris, who was a badass. And um, and so he that this is with all this fame doesn't mean he didn't still stay out of trouble in 1948 on September 1st. Uh, him 
and Lila Leeds were arrested for possession of marijuana. Oh, no, the <laughs> devil weed. Uh, and it was a result of a sting operation to capture other Hollywood partiers as well. But Mitchman Leeds did not receive any tip-off. <laughs> and they served a week in the county jail, describing the experience to a reporter as like Palm Springs, but without the riffraff, <laughs> which that's appropriate. I uh, spent 43 days at a Castaic California prison farm, life photographers got access to take photos of him mopping up his prison uniform. Life magazine wanted pictures of any fucking thing. Right. (laughs) Yeah, make sure you get my good backside while I'm mopping here, people. (laughs) (laughs) This is what all you vultures want, right? (laughs) Um, And this, it inspired the exploitation film, She Should Have Said No, which had leads in the movie. The conviction is overturned, and because of this whole affair, his troubles with the law, his recent success, the films that come after his release from prison are box office hits. Rachel and the Stranger, The Red Pony, The Big Steel, which is an early Don Siegel picture. He then starts working in films like when danger where danger lives with Claude Rains and then we find him up into the mid 1950s one of his films from this same year would be um would have been Blood Alley but due to his conduct he was fired Robert Mitchum was known to be um what's the nicest way to put this he's a jerk but when you read specific stories about Mitchum, you understand that it's more complicated than you would think. One example is that there's a story about Out of the Past where he actually stood up for an actress um, against an abusive producer. And there are stories about Mitchum's conduct on Night of the Hunter that are interesting because it shows behavior signs that we see now through the lens of the last four to five to six years of things coming out that you would not accept Mitchum's behavior today under any circumstances. Um, I will tell one of these things right up front. He and Paul Gregory did not get along to the point where, and this is in the commentary for night of the hunter on the Blu-ray, which is fantastic. Um, Mitchum and uh, Gregory butted heads to the point where eventually Mitchum pissed on Paul Gregory's car, Um, (laughs) which is hilarious in the grand scheme of things years removed. But still, you know, it's clear that Mitchum had an attitude that he wasn't going to go back down on. There is a element of toxic masculinity that inhabits Mitchum as a person. Now, in terms of how you receive that, I don't know. I don't think I don't know how to classify it from the grand scheme of what we've dealt with, because from all indication, he didn't like beat women or fucking commit any of those particular crimes. But, right. you know, I don't know. I, I'm wondering, Jack, how you see it. Within the <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, I think there's several things worth noting here, because his choice, first of all, um, through the lens of Davis Grubb was not without controversy himself. Right. He himself argued initially against Mitchum taking the role specifically for his dripping charisma and his, um, at that time, cultivated persona of on-screen sexuality. Yes, which um, which Lawton wanted to use. 
that, which of that, course that, Lawton wanted to use, given given his viewpoints on it. Also leading to one of my other favorite quotes um, from Lawton on this take, which is trying to convince Grubb. I mean, remember Grubb's novel. I mean, it's yes, it's Southern Gothic, so this fits Mitchell's upbringing, of course. But it's also just this, you know, uh, social critique about American social corruption, income inequality, economic instability. Um, depression era, you know, politic. So to then bring on your your primary antagonist as somewhat dripping with some sort of uh, transgressive uh, bad boy-esque sexuality and seductiveness was very much against the, the character that Grubb created. And one of my favorite lines is uh, in trying to uh, convince him, Lawton basically said, well, remember, if you're trying to sell God, you gotta be sexy. Yeah. That's that's uh, and that's a that's an element that Lawton with when it comes to Night of the Hunter, Lawton is delving deep into taboo, and it's 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 at this point that I want to bring up that um, Lawton was bisexual and pretty much the way you look at night of the hunter is interesting because he is coming at this from the perspective of somebody who has different sides to him and isn't afraid to show them off. Um, you know, but also, but also how one can also play with the duality of operation in secret and yeah. under states of repression of power structures above him, which yeah. he was all too familiar with. So this dichotomy was essential to how he then took the source material and built it around the characters. Yeah. And um, uh, the, to my mind, the amount of chances he takes comes from somebody who has that aspect about him at this time. It's not to, it's not to, you know, put it in the corner that anybody who had a different, you know, sexual orientation would be uh, the only like people to do this, but, there is something brave and bold about it. It's not too dissimilar from how Mitch Lyson, who was, uh, who has been noted, and we discussed, we could, we discussed him on to each his own, but we didn't talk about the fact that Mitch Lyson was also a homosexual director working in Hollywood at this time, and his films show a tenderness that would be associated with that orientation. But there is something brave about these guys working in these confines and getting different messages out that they might not have otherwise. Um, again, it's, it's not, you know, there, there are bigger discussions that are planned for this subject in, in general with um, a, an upcoming guest down the line. Um, but suffice it to say the way Lawton handles religion comes from, as Jack pointed, uh, pointed to, the idea of you got to have sex to sell religion, like you've got to have that kind of vibe to it, but also really digging into the taboos of what the censors would allow, because this film pushes every fucking boundary that the censors would have had at this time. Every you single thing. And I mean, I just even appreciate Lawton as, and by the way, there, there's a reason why within the stable of Lawton's um, acclaimed roles, we always consider him on one level as, one of the greatest ideas of, of, of the most empathetic of outsiders, right? This is a role that Lawton began to really perfect, the idea of someone on the periphery. Um, and so, and I, yeah, and I think you brought this up perfectly, you know, with his own background, his own, his own ideas uh, um, and his own um, belief systems. I mean, take it, I mean, you're talking about a guy who is a, um, who's bisexual, 
fervently anti-religious, um, very much um, closer to the left-wing side of politics, all within an era that this would have to be repressed. He's public enemy um, number one, especially it, in the 50s, given the Red Scare and the... Exactly. Yeah, the, the the immense repression going on at that point. Yeah, exactly, right? So so he understands, perhaps uh, better than anyone at that time, too, coming out with this idea of like a, a cultural and sexual code switching that I think is essential to understanding how he then directs uh, uh, Mitchum in this. But also just this personal hatred of the, um, he's anti-religious as we spoke spoke about generally, but he also has a particular fervent uh, fear and, and hatred of American Protestant extremism that mm -hmm. he saw manifest within the American experience, right? Of yeah. this like um, a violent and fervently um, judgmental wing of the American Bible Belt's religious wing of extremism that he saw. Yep, which so, would um, extend into the censorships, uh, different censorship groups of this era, because as, been, as has been discussed before, it's not just the Hayes Code. First of all, the Hayes Code, at this point had been replaced by the by the the, the Sherlock office and other elements like the Breen right. office these there's different elements of censorship and it's not just national it's state and local uh, and religious based and these hatreds of his religious stature of, of religious stature and this Bible belt mentality and this Protestant you know conservatism, would yes. be of contention to him, not just throughout his life, but also definitely in the making of this film. And it's funny to me that he is the way he is because the films that inspire this the most come from a big target today. Oh, yes, that's uh, right. But that's in right. the form of D.W. Griffith. Well, um, at least within the stylism of yes. how the story is presented, right? Yes, I think, um... that's the thing. Um, now, there's a note within this that among the films that Lawton screened in advance for preparing for Night of the Hunter are a nitrate print of Intolerance, which sounds wonderful, um, yeah. and then uh, obviously Birth of a Nation, which not so wonderful. And, um, you know, uh, D.W. Griffith, his legacy as the founding father of cinema has thankfully been reevaluated in an appropriate context to understand that he is far from the father of film. Um, that's a, that's a legend that has been thankfully demystified because Griffith was not the only innovator out there. As we've learned from world cinema or from the Mark cousins documentary, there are films outside of America that innovate before Griffith gets a hold of this. Of course, of course. But but Griffith was very influential for his time. It's undeniable, it's unargumentative that that does not excuse his art. <laughs> well, uh, of course it, not. It, but but wrong story short though, Lawton wanted to make a movie that brought back elements of the silent era. Griffith, primarily known for the silent era, um made his films that had what has been described by the historians and people interviewed as um, pastor an American pastoral pastiche. Um, there is something very simplistic about the look, the feel mm -hmm. that, you know, when you think of what you think America should be, which like this, you know, nice quiet towns where everybody gets along with each other, like the, the idyllic settings, Lawton sets to capture that to then have ultimately put it on its head with something terrifying going on. And 
in addition, he visually captures with DP Stanley Cortez the look of a Griffith film and the feel of a Griffith film with sound. So, and additionally, he delves into German expressionism, especially with scenes involving Mitchum. Um, and which I, yeah, which I think is very important to highlight here because yeah. bringing up Cortez, I think, is a perfect entry point to this as well because everything about Night of the Hunter, and I, I w- I'm going to proffer out a, a rather bold statement at the onset here that I hope that by the end of our discussion and after viewing the films, your listeners will will come to agree with, and that I not only think, you know, thinking through it now in in this stage, that Night of the Hunter is absolutely within the top ten american films ever made Mm -hmm. and that may not be too controversial but i think it is also possibly among the top five of films made about america it is very specifically a viewpoint of the american construct and as such um we talked about his own um like code switching back and forth uh, both culturally and with his views on religion and politic and his own sexuality so for me, the overarching word that best represents this film, both literally and figuratively, is fluidity, right? Yeah. The entire construct here is Lawton playing with this idea, just like with his great uh, parable of love and hate, of the dichotomy within individuals and then therefore within the, the constructs of, of religions or governments that they create, a fluidity back and forth bridging two different components of themselves. Yep, and one of the themes that tackles that's tackled in the film is repression and as discussed by us new shamley this is a country that is built upon repression it's like no bury your feelings deep inside <laughs> if that it's gonna ever exactly. pop up back up to the shellfish ever again and um and something that i think he that and that's and it makes a bunch of sense when he sees davis grubb's book and goes you know this is this is all the things i want to talk about in a movie he gets a hold of Davis uh, Davis Grubbs, and he goes to the ad agency in Philadelphia where he's where Grubb is working at. Night of the Hunter was his first novel, and he goes to the ad agency and he you know is looking for him and he goes, "Dear Lord, man, where are your masters?" <laughs> Which is the greatest quote ever, and he starts working with Grubb. Grubb is has inherently with night of the hunter made a cinematic property in the form of a novel and when lawton and him met he they met for five days in philadelphia where lawton went and then lawton went back to california they kept up the correspondence whenever lawton had a question about how something should feel from grub grub would draw a picture and send a bunch of pictures to the point where charles lawton said send more pictures man and those images are in the film Lawton drew into those as basically storyboards and those storyboards paint this picture that Grubb himself feels from the American purview, but also, Mm. but you know, keep in mind, Davis Grubb wrote the novel. You need to have a screenwriter, right? Jack, you gotta have a fun. Yeah. Imagine who you might get for that. Yeah. Yeah. Who do you get? Um, well say I, uh, hi, John Houston here. I, I had a fellow that I just worked with a very lovely (laughs) fellow, uh, writes a bunch of fucking words. His name is James Agee. Just did the African queen for me. Glorious, glorious film. And uh, I think he'd be perfect for your movie. I had nothing to do with this production, but I'm here for the purposes of this imaginary scenario. Now, uh, (laughs) now if you'll excuse me, I'm off to go hunt a fucking elephant. Um, (laughs) and, uh, Uh, Yes, A.G., born in Tennessee, 
Uh, and he is very aware of not just the Southern aesthetic that would be required for this film and its view of it, but also Depression era. Um, his yeah. um, experience yeah. with writing, writing upon the Depression, Let Us Now Praise Famous Men from 1941, uh, a low-selling book uh, before being basically like reevaluated over time. Uh, and there were other... Um, uh, manuscripts discovered late in 2003 like Cotton Tenets uh, which would have been the essay that he would have submitted to fortune editors uh, in regards to um, these stories about uh, living with photographer Walter Walker Evans taking pictures of the sharecroppers in Alabama in the south at, at the south at the time in the depression is at a low ebb uh, coming off of reconstruction um, for con for context a reason why the movie Gone with the Wind is so successful is because it emboldens the South in a way they hadn't been emboldened after the Civil War. That's the big reason why the movie is still as praised as it is because of what it did there. And right. again, that's baggage for another day. But somebody like A.G. understands that environment and that scenario and he did a bunch of writing for charlie chaplin um and one thing he tried to write for Char charlie chaplin was a movie where the tramp would survive a nuclear holocaust which would have been titled the tramp's new world <laughs> <laughs> oh, marvelous and the text of this is pu was published in 2005 i need to look into this um but his his career as a scriptwriter was curtailed by alcoholism um he is uh, he still manages to produce major content. Now, he gets tapped to do Night of the Hunter. He turns in a first draft that is 293 pages. 293 pages. Now, you might think that's excessive Sorkin-level nonsense, but <laughs> there is a rumor about him being able to revise or edit, and in fact, AG was not canned from the project as myth had dictated, uh, in fact, he was brought on for the last five weeks of the revisions and the rewrites and is on the payroll based on documents. Not everybody remembers that who was on the production, as is evidenced in the commentary with the second unit directors. But it's undeniable that AG was heavily involved in this. And what's more, despite all of his involvement, agreed thoroughly with Lawton that Davis Grubbs deserved above credit because right, right. it's very rare, as in, in AG's words, it's very rare that a... Uh, a, a novelist writes a movie that was literally built for the screen. Um, and within that, we're, we're almost done with production, guys, I swear. It's just there's a lot of shit to go through here. Um, <laughs> Shelley Winters as Willa Harper is the unsung uh, acting genius of this movie, I figure, because uh, originally there was uh, considerations for Agnes Moorhead, Grace Kelly, and Betty Grable, which Grace Kelly, no, 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 not for that, no, 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 Lawton, I understand that everybody wants to work with the lovely Grace Kelly, but no, 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 Agnes Moorhead probably would have worked. Betty Grable, at this point in her career, yeah, probably. I don't know if she would have been able to do what Winters does here, but but Lawton chose Winters because she had that vulnerable quality and was a more of a serious actor than a movie star. And she committed to the role only two weeks before the filming began. Um, and Winters has described this as probably the most thoughtful and reserved performance I ever gave because Willa Harper goes through a weird journey and she's only in the first third of the movie. 
And the journey that she goes on is absolutely crazy. Um, now, the other unsu- the other hero of this movie is Lillian Gish. And Lillian Gish has a history. She has been described as the first lady of American cinema and helped pro- pioneer fundamental filming techniques. She worked with Griffith. She's yes. in The Birth of a Nation. All right, we'll get past that. But she also has other roles in films down the line. She didn't stop working. She continued to work um, even past the silent era into the sound era. She's in films of this, of the time span that we're talking about. Her most recent films would have been things like duel in the sun. Um, And Gish's history is too packed to talk about here today. (laughs) I think that you should know that she she was an ID ID like much like Mary Pickford. She is an image of American cinema that is undeniable to do to, to go without in talking about film history. So there is a element of Lawton casting her that not only taps into the Griffith that he wants to emulate, but he is also doubling down on the American pastiche with going like, you know, not only am I going to make a movie about upending um, the American construct. I'm going to get America's first lady of cinema to help me fucking do That's it. That's right. One of our first sweethearts to try in a brilliant stroke of casting. Yeah. And the, the whole notion of Gish playing this role, it is very much like what happens to her characters in a Griffith movie when she grows up. I, I mm. do feel like there's this element of it where, it's almost like it's an extension off of like the the more uh, like the more pastoral like American based pieces that Griffith did, um, and I think with her performance, it is the it is reserved as shit because she's having to contradict the over the topness of Harry Powell, and right. it's been described that there's Brechtian acting going on in this movie. Yeah, yeah. Now. I am unfamiliar with Brechtian acting. Jack, what can you tell me about Brechtian acting? <laughs> well, and this is also um, when talking about just the uniqueness. And my God, can we just for a moment just reflect on not only how fucking unique this film is in the entire American canon, but then just how unique Charles Lawton was in his only film. This is not only his debut, it is his final film. And, and, it's, and also, well, I'm a British man talking about America. Do you understand how <laughs> insane it is that I have to come across the pond to tell you about your own bullshit? <laughs> exactly, exactly right. Exactly. And well, yeah, hey, well, that's been a long tradition, right? Has, hasn't right now most of the, of the most, uh, most of the films that have most sh- shaken um, America in terms of how we are able to finally look at and acknowledge race come from British directors coming over here to say, here's actually how slavery looks to the rest of the world. Um, yeah. Charles, do you think that we um, were pushing things a little too much? No, oh boy, I think we did just fucking fine. We did just fine <laughs> of this. And, I mean, and on top of this outsider status that we've already touched upon very briefly about what makes him so unique to be telling this American story, as you just um, led into as well. I mean, let's also look, Charles comes from the background of the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, right? And is, and is also yeah. just kept the pulse of, of the world of theater and emerging trends in, in European the- theatrical traditions and the American theatrical traditions. He is on the cusp of understanding current, current thresholds of trends. And so what we talk about with, uh, with Brechtian acting here, which has um, been, been pointed out is, is what Mitchum is really attempting to do 
and um, mainly at the at the behest of Lawton here, it could be argued. It is a tradition that emerges from the, the world of, of theater, um, from uh, not only the philosophy, but also the creation of what was known as epic theater. And this is an idea where um, as politics, and, and again, this is what I argue, this is a very political film, Yeah. right? And, um, and, and people don't recognize it as such. And I think that's what makes it so beautiful is again, that fluidity of what makes this film so unique, right? Are we watching a horror film? Perhaps. Are we watching just a fairy tale, right? Are we watching a scathing critique of capitalism and the delusion of the American religious construct? Possibly, maybe all, most likely all, yeah. right? And so he's also understanding that he is infusing a very political film that that is a solid critique of both the failures of capitalism emerging from the depression in economic inequality but also our deep rooted repression from our from the extremes of the american religious experience i mean this is political and it is um very much uh on fire political political fodder to here, the right? point of literally fire in one of those particular scenes that directly indicts religion religion almost as a form of nazism right there right yeah um so yeah this is the thing is that it's it's whenever in, in the world of theater as political art is starting to make a much greater appearance with the advent of modernism at the end of world war ii and and we're being very political um, Brechtian acting is a way to try to distance oneself, to, to make it very self-aware through epic theater and through your acting that we want you to not necessarily be sold on, um, you know, believing the historical nature of what we're showing you, but rather to be sold through the character's own interpretation, a believability that I'm selling what my viewpoint is to bring you out of the, the experience that you're watching a play, right? Yeah. And in this case, a film. Yeah. Now, what's funny is that we talk about him bringing him out of that experience. Gish doesn't have the same luxury. So Not at all. So her history, she acts in school plays in, 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 her, in her youth, but it isn't really until she uh, becomes friends with Gladys Smith, and Gladys is a child actress who did work for D.W. Griffith. Gladys Smith ends up becoming Mary Pickford, they start working like get Lillian uh, and Dorothy join his theater uh, of, of productions, which then move into the films of Biograph Studios. Gish goes through the gamut as an actor in silent films, which is a very different form of acting than acting for sound, let alone acting and the many methods that come over the course of the golden age of Hollywood, because acting traditions and methods change. Um, yes. Not the yes. least of which is the method acting that occurs out of the fifties uh, from people like Brando or James Dean. And so Gish is given this unenviable task. I want to give people like this, this perspective in here, by the time the mid 20 mid to late twenties hit Greta Garbo surpasses her as MGM's leading lady because she does get into MGM and she had a lackluster debut in Talkies. Um, and she wa Louis Mayer actually wanted to garner a public sympathy scandal for Gish, but uh, uh, Gish was just like, I'm not putting up with that fucking nonsense, Louis. That's ridiculous. <laughs> um, by the time she returns to films in 1946, she gets a nomination for 1946's Duel in the Sun. And... Uh, 
people felt that it evoked memories of her silent film performances. Um, And the uh, she was actually considered for Gone with the Wind to play Scarlett's mother or Belle Watling. Uh, And by the time she gets to Night of the Hunter, she is playing off of the old maid kind of character. And what's interesting about Gish's character in Night of the Hunters is that she feels forgotten by her children who have gone on to greater success, which is why she has this collective of transient abandoned children because she's filling a hole in herself. And I think that it's interesting that Gish is a person who is at the forefront of American film production that then (laughs) sees all these other ingenues and actresses come by and sweep off sweep sweep up what she did and under the rug and arguably perfected in different ways but she is left to the you know to a dustbin to a certain respect until duel with the sun when people understand that they can utilize her in a different market you get prestige out of a character that you normally just cast with a character actor and gish brings that to the movie especially by its back third um but Within this, I guess it's time that we start talking about this movie. Let's break down Night of the Hunter as a plot. We- as we're just exiting there, let me do yeah, one sure. final shout out sure. to who I consider, um, as we leave production, one of my like top heroes of the film. Again, is just briefly re-mentioned this idea with Stanley Cortez, uh, cinematographer, um, who you know spans the gamut, right? Between like Magnificent Ambersons and Shot Court. I was going to say, do I mean- you know what Orson Welles said about Stanley Cortez with Magnificent Ambersons. What was that? He's a genius, but he's impossibly slow. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's Barry Orson. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> who thinks all of cinematography can be learned in a day. Uh, <laughs> sure, isn't that how it always fucking happens? But yes, love you're right. He is, too, right. he but is no, the I hero. Mean, and yeah. this speaks exactly to what we're talking about with how audacious, how fucking audacious this film is. And, and, and genius creatively to play with these extreme dichotomies, right? You just brought it up how you level this like over the top, um, often um, Brechtian um, acting, hyper-masculine and yet um, sometimes drifting into caricature acting of Mitchum purposely so for a point. And then you level it against this old silent era, very very reserved and stoic performance. um, by Gish. And then also take take into account too, these dichotomies are what makes this film so amazing. Um, because not only like, I, it's one thing audaciously to make a film in which you have the dichotomy of two existing themes that can push back against one another, right? Yeah. A true dichotomy thematically, um, and then allow them to play against one another. But on top of that, Lawton has the audacity to also make it a duality, a conflicting real-time duality of styles, of actual filmic styles. And this is where Stanley Cortez comes into it because Lawton essentially is saying to make this film about America, to demonstrate our own version stylistically of love and hate within the same person, I want to show the dichotomy between Griffith-esque American silent film construction realism, right? This plain slate of silent era Griffith-esque realism and then I'm going to level against it high contrast German expressionism with all its bizarre shadows, its stylized 
um, dialogues, it's distortive perspectives, right? It's, it's surrealist moments and odd camera angles and play them against each other throughout the film as this tug of war stylistically. And what Cortez does with that, with his exploration of Tri-X uh, Kodak film for the high contrast blacks, I mean, this is amazing to look at. It's it's. I wanted to talk about that Triax film for a second. He starts off with using that for Black Tuesday, which, by the way, the uh, the the crew of this film is actually like a good portion of it is ported over from Black Tuesday, because uh, you have um uh the uh you have the editor uh Robert Golden, um and you have uh. Hilliard, Br- Hilliard Brown, the art director, who is also an unsung hero of this film, too. Mm, yes, and yes, yes. a certain star that we'll talk about in a minute who known for his penchant and love of gra- gladiator films. And <laughs> um, uh, But yes, that crew is carried over, essentially. And the Triax film provides contrast that makes the whites white and the blacks black. What it means is, is that if you are shooting something that has a dark or a black environment and whatnot, it is going to be dark. We talk about Gordon Willis as kind of like one of those pioneers of this. It's Stanley Cortez is really the the pioneer of this. I, I agree wholeheartedly. And uh, the what's more, what Cortez does visually for this film makes this film super watchable today because by the standards of what we expect out of a 4K image to deepen the colors, crush the blacks, etc., etc., Cortez's film is built for Heck, I would argue a 4K transfer. Were it not Absolutely. for for were it not for a couple of reels that would clearly look terrible because of deterioration, uh, this film could get a 4K release, and I would absolutely believe that you had done the best possible job ever because it's yeah, yeah. because the movie is in black and white, which you know Lawton and Gregory and everybody agreed this movie should not be in color; it needs to be in black and white, not just for the silent film aesthetic, but also what we're about to see. The the, the element of it, it would be a super simple-ish transfer in the regards of knowing what is intended here because Cortez basically gives you all the blueprints. He's not yeah. hiding anything. In fact, right. much of this is on the surface. Um, and within that, actually, the imagery of Night of the Hunter starts off very much present and aware. Uh, of how unique it's going to be because it starts in the stars. <laughs> I, right? The, oh my God. What, night what an opening. When you revisit this film again recently, and I'm so glad uh, your listeners have obviously done, you, you forget just what, what an astonishing opening that is, right? Yeah. You literally invokes like you're being put to sleep from a literal <laughs> lullaby from a caretaker, right? Yep. Singing toward, like basically singing you to sleep, reminding you, like pushing you on your way toward a fantastical nightmare from the onset but somehow knowing that you're going to be okay when you wake up. Yep. And Walter Schumann's score starts it off very interestingly. It starts with the Powell theme and then regresses into the lullaby. And then you hear Lillian Gish go space, the final frontier. These are the voyages. (laughs) No, 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 no. What what an opening. Yeah. It's Gish. It's Gish narrating as a floating head uh, of uh, reciting, reciting biblical passages discussing the innocence of youth with a a series of children's floating heads from all nationalities and all parts of the world, which was an idea that AG had proposed and was initially intended for the end of the film, but then it got put into the front of the film because Lawton was like, let's set this up at the top. And then we start getting 
these sweeping images of the Ohio River and the exteriors of what is going to be our cinematic West Virginia, which were done by Terry Sanders as the second unit director. Lawton saw his Academy Award winning short film dealing with elements of the Civil War. And he goes like, I want you to shoot these exteriors, but we're going to shoot the rest of it in Hollywood because money. And, (laughs) and, and, And Mitchum was actually very upset that they didn't film it in this in the actual West Virginia area. In which, West Virginia, he pushed hard for that. Yeah, exactly. But you know, and Mitchum, you know, when he was told no, he's just like, "Fine, I'll piss on your car." I'll piss on your car, sir. <laughs> Pissing on all the cars. I'm Robert Mitchum. <laughs> and uh, we start off with these sweeping images of the South, and then we are pretty much thrust right away into the 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 terror that is Harry Powell, Reverend Harry Powell. Um, and you know, I, I, I may intersperse clips here and there of the brilliance of his dialogue and delivery, but I, I will recite his first ones. Well, now what's it to be Lord, another widow. How many is it bit? Six, 12. I just remember you say the word Lord. I'm on my way. You always send me money to go forth and preach your word. The widow with a little wad of bills hit away in a sugar bowl. Lord, I'm tired. Sometimes I wonder if you really understand. Not that you mind the killings. Your book's full of killings. Your book is full of killings. But there are things you do hate, Lord. Perfume-smelling things. <laughs> lacy things. Things with curly hair. Curly hair. Things that have cars that I can piss on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I, I, I'll, I'll never drop that. Now, 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 you... But from the get-go, Powell is a intentionally twisted and perverted form of the deep religious sect that points to the deep fanaticism that you find in religion to this day. Hooray! Now, and uh, and and right from the get-go, you know from his delivery, from the fact that it's Bob Mitchum, from the fact that he is, you know, immediately giving you this very strong point of view. Like, this, this point of view from a character, look, and feel is very in your face. Yeah. You are aware he is the bad guy, even though he is perverting religious terminology to his own psychotic means. And it's exemplified further in this very simplistic set, which Lawton utilized a bunch in this movie to emulate silent film technique. This very simple burlesque effect with involving a, uh, basically a cookie cutter outside, like a, like a, a silhouette on the outside of uh, like peeping through a keyhole of this burlesque dancer, Powell sitting in this auditorium and gripping his hands. Is this where we're going to talk about the knife erection? Oh, you talking about? Oh, you talking about knife boner? Yeah, let's talk about knife boner. <laughs> Is this the which? Not enough podcasts feature not feature knife boners. No, only on the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review will you talk about knife boners <laughs> and have <laughs> it and have it not be related to the film Seven. And <laughs> in his just glorious, impotent rage of misogyny and the perversion of the religious experience. Oh, my God. It's just one, one of the great openers right there. Right. And, the, and so transgressive for 1955 for him to start just from the onset, just leveling on exactly what this means. Right. Do you know how far it would have gone had it not been for the censors? They were going to have this night pop up through the trousers, not through the coat pocket. That was the initial intention. 
amazing. And, and the the fact that we even get the image is amazing. And it, right. and it and it's uh it's still framed at one point. If you break if you break it down like frame by frame on your um uh on your Blu-ray, you'll notice that the image stops because Lawton wants to hold on it. Um and He's and he's and he's flipping up the knife with the hate button or with the hate hand. So it, it we are given, lit- yes. we are given literal imagery and suggestive imagery that helps you. If you're a film theory enthusiast who wants to learn more, this is like a technically like a good starter film for you. Like mm-hmm. not too dissimilar from The Godfather, where it's just like yeah, anytime it has a, somebody has an orange, they're gonna fucking die. Like that that kind of mentality. And from the get go. Powell is arrested because he's too clearly stolen a car and he's just like, well, no, 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 wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> and within this, we are also getting the introduction of, uh, the, uh, uh, of a murder robbery that has taken place. Um, and, uh, Ben Harper is at the he- at head of it. Now, Ben Harper's played by Peter Graves Today we know Peter Graves as uh, a guy who simply asks the question, "Have you ever seen a grown man naked?" <laughs> <laughs> the great legacy. Oh, uh, I, I well, we, we hey, we could joke about it, but the Zuckers don't get enough credit for what they do for comedy. I, I do right. genuinely believe that um, they they pull into Marxian territory like you wouldn't believe. Now that being said, though, Peter Graves had a bigger career than just airplane and one of those films is the night of the hunter he plays ben harper this father desperate for money in the great depression uh murdering somebody to rob a stash of cash and the uh the 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 combination of the second unit photography into the first shot of that person dead um i think really lays into the beauty of the production that were set afoot, like yeah, to combine yeah. second unit photography with this. Um, and with Ben Harper, his murder occurs with the first murder we see is that of Harry Powell. Um, the second murder that we seen is Ben Harper, who has murdered two men in the bank robbery and stat and gotten a wad of $10,000. And he goes to his children, John and Pearl, at the front of their house, telling them to hide the money. And John, he he goes into this spiel with John about, you know, like, protect your sister. Instilling a lot of, you know, traditional, like, manly values into John at such an early age. And hide the money and tell nobody where you find where you, where it is nobody and that's when you see the cops come and arrest Ben Harper and Ben Harper seems to go pretty quietly until the police shove him down and right, start right. kicking the shit out of him before they put the cuffs on him and you hear John going no 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 can we talk for just a moment too about that scene i mean watching it now in my latest and i i've seen this film easily 20 times but just uh, like the, the the literalism of a gut punch moment, watching John recoil with his stomach, yeah, in physical pain. Also understanding it's the first thing that's set in motion um, by Ben Harper of the idea that there exist ideals um, and values, right or wrong, that are in opposition to the state and to the social construct. And yeah. I'm instilling in you that you will have to make choices. And so, you know, it's also this idea of understanding like the state 
destroying his childhood right the system itself destroying his childhood yeah and it is such a powerful scene which then gets bookend beautifully and heart achingly again at the end of the film because in a very the, surprising moment right and I, it's such a lovely and powerful moment it's a film. mental strain for john john, yeah. john billy chapin is the actor um the kid actor playing john and you know the kid acting in this movie i feel like i hear 500 different interpretations of it mm. and the one one of the one rumor will quash right away is is that Tr lawton didn't hate these children not at all. <laughs> he did not hate these children. He loved working with them. He had to be patient with them as you would. Uh, Billy Chapin and Sally Jane Bruce, who plays Pearl, um, <laughs> you know, they're young actors who are given a virtually impossible task to represent a pastoral version of youth set in the Great Depression with very complicated material. The fact that we have the performances we do suggests that if you have a problem with these performers, I hate you. And <laughs> and to me, here, here. and it's exemplified with like, the first time I saw this film, Chapin's reactions were awkward to me. The more I watch this film, the more I understand how brave it is to hold on him slowly you're watching his stomach turn at the thought of his father being brutally assaulted by the police even after he's already put up his hand ben harper already knows he's fucked he knows he's yeah. going to die so that this is the ten thousand dollars is a, is an insurance policy for his fucking children at this point and and for willa and so to watch that unfold is unnerving and tension-ridden. When you watch the documentary that's attached to this Blu-ray, which we will do a separate episode at some point about this um, with you on board, Jack, is Love it. Charles Lawton directs where you you will watch Lawton, you will listen to Lawton be patient because the way this film was made, they were consistent of long takes where they let the camera run. Slate at the beginning, slate at the end. Yeah, whole reel, whole reel. Whole right. reel of film with Lawton talking over the performances and directing this like a silent movie and working bit by bit to get those performances out. And so when you watch what Chapin goes through, it's it's through an immense amount of patience on Lawton's part and on Mitchum's part in certain respects. And you're watching a true, genuine child performer blossoming in an environment that would be almost impossible for anyone to... It, it, you can't ignore the brilliance of this. Um, I'd agree. And, you know, and, and also simultaneously through the character, um, Ben, uh, Ben Harper, through his one brief moment of film, introduces us not only to understand the vivid reality of social inequality in that moment of what Americans are willing to do post-depression to secure the legacy of their children and protect themselves in a society that has taken away a lot of economic rights for a very select, you know, few, you know, people, but also instantly, like like John, makes us um, an accomplice in the secret, makes us an immediate accomplice to understand that it is now us, our family, against all of these structures, against the state, against America itself. It is from the very onset so political and so daring with the introduction of this character for this brief moment. Yeah. And it's not it's not as brief as people think. Peter Graves is in two scenes. Because it's this one and then it's the moment where Harry Powell will get an idea. <laughs> <laughs> 
because with, he with finds one of the best uh, pop down performances of introduction of, of a villain there, off the top bunk. Can I, we speak of that for one second? I love in the commentary that they point out that anytime this movie gets screened again, that pop down from the top bunk gets a big laugh in the theater. <laughs> <laughs> like you and I would imagine so because when I watch it and I see Mitchum's head pop down like this like in like this villainous snake I'm like that is fucking funny <laughs> like, it, it is I mean and let's be honest Lawton himself even tells like from the onset about this not only like embedded within the film but also just literally every time he talks about Night of the Hunter this is at heart a fairy story quote it is a nightmarish sort of a mother goose tale so he is just quite open about how how uh Pal can also just appear randomly as this this mother goose villainous um, big bad wolf trope, which you'll see all throughout the entire film. But, but there's an uncanny terror to it as well yeah. with his sudden appearances. How many times his villainous character is either introduced only first as a shadow or as a song approaching. There's an anxiety that builds. From a villainous context, it's almost, you you don't see that again, I would argue, until something later on like Jaws, where there is almost <laughs> like this off-screen thematic anxiety that builds as you, the viewer, and the child realize he's coming before he makes his presence bursting onto the screen. And, and like the end with the same unstoppable force that, that the shark represents in Jaws. It's just brilliant. It's funny that the even though Powell is on screen as much as Powell can be, there are moments where Lawton pulls back on showing his face yes. to instill that Jaws-like terror. And yeah, also yeah. now I'm thinking, what if Robert Mitchum had played the shark in Jaws? That <laughs> We need to get to work immediately. I, I, I think we need to call some. Uh, I, I think we need to call some Amblin boy right now and tell him that he made a fucking mistake. <laughs> but yeah, I don't have to piss on any cause now. I could just piss in the water. Um, <laughs> no, but think about it. in the traditional fairy tale or folkloric tradition, or even specifically within Mother Goose, how many times villains are either introduced by first either announcing their intention yeah. to come to you, right? I'm on my way or by the hair of my chinny chin chin. Like they'll either announce it so that the dread itself serves as a secondary form of trauma for the protagonist. Or they use a cover up or disguise. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or they just burst in, right? Mm -hmm. It is this, this upending. And that's where this really, this performance drifts into the uncanny valley that gives it such an eerie spectacle, makes it a horror film. It's just how he can emerge it's it's both comical, but at the same time so uncanny valley that it's unnerving. Yeah, and right? he, and he ups the intellectual ante on that mother goose fairy tale because the way Harry Powell approaches Ben Harper is like he's trying to get him into this good graces. Like now I'm a preacher now. You can tell me your sins, Ben Harper. Right. You tell me where'd you hide that fucking money? And <laughs> and the it's that build of seduction that he plays exactly. Right? And Peter Graves is not having it to the point where. <laughs> Because he's been talking in his sleep, and that's when Powell's like, "Say money," and the uh, the the whole interaction goes off with first Ben Harper rightfully asking, "Exactly what the fuck do you preach for, sir? Like, what what yeah, is your yeah. religious stack?" It, it it is like one of those things of like at the same time of condemning religion, it also condemns like it it calls into question the legitimacy of the people who preach in the Word of God, and so therefore Ben Harper is asking in many respects. Like, you know, like, do you really believe in God or is this all a fucking hoax and whatnot? You know, which is a bolder statement to make the most. But because Mitchum is the villain, 
it's a cover. You can you can slip it by the censor in that respect. The argument you can make to the censor at this point is no, no, no. It's it's defaming people who pervert God's words. Exactly right. It's it's such a clever clever way to get around that. And remember too, they actually the the production code itself force them to not actually have Mitchum's character be of a specific denomination yeah. or even an ordained minister, right? Yeah. It's the idea of a fraudulent misinterpretation of God's will that allows you to slide by and still be anti-religious and still maintain your, your yeah. purity, as it were. The only specifics we get is that he's called Reverend Powell, which right. you which That's you right. could like narrow down a specific denomination from that, but it's, it, you know, it, it, everybody's got a reverend at some yeah. point, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very Calvinistic, right? Like, we kind of get where, where it's coming from. I also love that idea of the introduction of a character that that also openly admits from the onset that it's my own twisted interpretation of a direct conversation with God. It made me allude to that to the character of Teddy Savalas playing in the Dirty Dozen of Maggots. Yeah, this, yeah. Right? Like this, this villainous this... interpretation that I'm an instrument of God's will because of my own interpretations and dealings directly with the Lord. I w I'll make an argument that Kevin Smith gets to play in this pool as well with Michael Parks in Red State. And now Marvelous. he, now Marvelous. He, yeah, now he has a, a real life example to go off of. <laughs> right, right, right. But the cinematic tradition of this is carried forward in something like Red State, and also yeah. like you know, like I mean, I think there's a subtler version of it in something like The Master with Philip Seymour Hoffman playing this Scientology um, mm -hmm. proxy mm -hmm. that you understand that it is their perverted version of some mystic deity that's coming down on high to preach a word to you, whether it be thy Lord God or Zenu, you know, one of the two, but you know, they're right. there and it doesn't really, Powell doesn't need to know where the money is, but he does know Ben Harper's last name. He knows he's got a wife and children and that's about all he learns before. And basically where he comes from before, you know, Ben Harper stuffs a sock in his mouth to be like, I ain't talking to my sleep again. <laughs> That's a great, mo I love that moment where he's just like, nope, not getting anything out of me, Reverend. Fuck you. <laughs> you know, he just like quietly puts it in his mouth. <laughs> yeah, now just let me fucking sleep before I hang. And Ben Harper is put to death. Powell is released and he's just like, I'm on my way. I'm making it big time. <laughs> and he goes like, I know of a nice young widow who's, um, who's, who's about to, Oh no! I'm, I'm I know of a of a good stack of money and a nice young lady who's about to be a widow. About to be widowed. Yeah, he, exactly. He's, he's thanking he's thanking God for turning him on to this amazing opportunity, right? This uh, predestined event that he has been sent down. Yeah, and we also with and then within this we also like get the children's reactions to the the fact that the whole town knows that their father is uh, has been hanged and a chorus of children singing about the hangman is eerie to the point oh. where there is an influence that carries on into this from this film that carries into the present in a form that I don't think most people recognize. Tim Burton does this shit a lot. Mm. A very, very creepy Gothic aesthetic set within the idyllic norm. And the the vibe that I got from those children singing that song recalls to mind not just horror films, but also sometimes how Burton infuses the gothic within the normal suburbia. He he takes it into the post-war nuclear family aesthetic. 
um, which you see in things like Edward Scissorhands and such. It's not the most prevalent, but you do see it there. And the reaction of the children, like Pearl starts singing along to this fucking song, and John yeah, has to tell yeah. her, you can't sing that song because you're too young for it. And it's also within this we get introduced to Uncle Bertie, who... And real quickly, as we leave this, room, just let me just throw in, too. You're so apt with your Tim Burton uh, component as well. For me, and this scene really stuck out again so strongly to me upon my latest rewatch as a real gut punch of a moment, too. Um, for me, it also it, it immediately invoked also the opening sequence of the Wild Bunch with the children dropping in these scorpions into the ant nest, right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Just kind of like, but also showing how conditioned you are through the indoctrination of the ideals of the state, right? Yeah. And which has now, which John is now like placed firmly as an outsider trying to, to to relegate his own father and family and thus his own personal antagonism with an institution that these kids have just bought into from the onset. Yep. And, and as, and as I think that what's interesting is that John, his, his emotional journey throughout the movie is about him finding some form of trust and yep. something yep. to, something to uh, rely on that he can't because he is put in multiple positions of not being able to trust anybody. The The film's about a loss of innocence, but it's also about the earning of trust. And it comes through traditionalist lenses of the era that still subvert, even though they seem traditional on the surface. And that mainly comes in the form of Gish's character, which will come up later. But, sure, and when we get to that final bookend, a surprising subversive take by John yeah. on how he still chooses to either react or not endorse by the end. I want to get to that too. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. We'll get to it. But first we have to get to this town and this Uncle Bertie character who yes, is yes. Uncle Bertie, uh, uh, or as his full name is Uncle Bertie Steptoe, played by James Gleason. Uh, this is a character that fools us at first because we are intended to believe at a certain point that he will be the saving grace of this movie, like the people who, the person who protects the children. Um, and he, they have these wonderful scenes by a riverboat. This this movie does a good job at capturing southern aesthetic without frustrating me from a modern context. Mm. We get through the process of this town and introducing everybody it's within this that harry powell has descended upon the town and willa works at this candy shop <laughs> run run by it's the icy spoon icy spoon yeah um one run by icy spoon played by evelyn varden and don Bedeau playing walt spoon um icy is over the top nose like 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 sniffing into places she doesn't need to sniff into inserting her herself into lives she doesn't need to bother with and you know she's constantly harping on willa about how the children need a father at one point and by the time harry arrives and john enters pearl has already been seduced by powell um, in a certain respect, but it doesn't fully happen until we get, and I will insert the clip of this here, uh, the the speech about love and hate from Harry Powell. Ah, little lad, you're staring at my fingers. Would you like me to tell you the little story of right hand, left hand? The story of good and evil. 
H-A-T-E. It was with this left hand that old brother Cain struck the blow that laid his brother low. L-O-V-E. You see, these fingers, dear hearts, these fingers has veins that run straight to the soul of man. The right hand, friends, the hand of love. Now watch and I'll show you the story of life. These fingers, dear hearts, is always a warring and a tugging, one against the other. Now watch them. Old brother left hand. Left hand hates a fighting. And it looks like love's a goner. But wait a minute. Wait a minute. Hot dog loves a winning. Yes, sirree. It's love that won. And old left hand hate is down for the count. I never heard it better told. I wish every soul in this community could get the benefit. Oh, you just got to stay for our picnic Sunday. No, I'm... And I think with this scene, you are treated to the charisma of religion as it stands. And that's why you need the sex of Robert Mitchum to sell this interpretation of religion because it is so broad, but so specific that it would entrance anybody in this idyllic setting of keeping up with good values to the point where keeping up with good values sometimes turns into mob mentality. Um, of course. Which, right? Yeah. Look how subversive this is too, because like John, you were the other smirking character that knows, Oh my God, you know, you, you, these people, you're on the wrong side, right? You're on the wrong side of history here with your affectations of judgments and morality, right? Your yeah. puritanical ideas of how, of what makes a person truly just and right. You're on the wrong side and look how easily you can be seduced and only within the catalyst of religion, right? He is brilliant to make them be surrogates for also like the, the frightening uh, extremist ends of, of the worst elements of religion, right? Sexual repression, judgment, and ultimately violence. Well, exactly. And within Mitchum's performance, it still sends a chill down your spine to watch it. Is this, yeah. this is not, this is not hammy. Like, and I could see how somebody would see it as hammy and I would encourage them to be like, you have to understand that what Mitchum is doing is intoxicating the town with this perverted belief. And when you watch him do what he's doing, when he clasps his hands together and does the arm wrestling thing, like it's fucking magic from an acting standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. Like you could say over the top, I'd argue like, no, 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 no. Like this is, this is a preacher. This is what they'll do. I've seen it in church. You've seen it in church. We've all seen it in church. He is doing exactly what he needs to do. And it, and it, and it encaptures the attention of somebody like Pearl, who is, you know, young and very impressionable and, you know, also has the blankest stare in the world. This is the one thing I will say about Pearl. She, <laughs> it's very hard to, like, there are some instances where I'm like, you are not reacting, but you are also super young compared to John. I'm not expecting, like, the same level that Billy Chapin is getting. So it's well, not- What I will say for Sally Jane here, in a defense of this too, um, who never went on to have any sort of acting career. She became an educator and is uh, still... The thing about her, though, is I still somehow, even through her, her just innocence and through her uh, unintentional bewilderment in these scenes, 
the only other time I can then equate that to where another young actress popped on the scene. I think you have to go all the way then to like Drew Barrymore in E.T. where someone just like, yeah, just burst with this. Just like there's an authenticity to her own bewilderment. Yeah, that's the that thing. somehow sells the charm the, of this character. That's the thing. When I'm when I'm criticizing it, it's not in the regards of insulting the performance. It is just like something you are fully aware of is just yes, like this yes. wide eye, like, holy crap. There are moments where that plays heavily into the benefit and thanks to the editing of Golden, but also Lawton knowing where the reaction's going to go. And exactly. now this 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 all leads into our first of many biblical songs being uh, being just creepy as all shit, bringing in the sheaths mm. and this picnic that is going on. You hear Mitchum's voice overpower everybody in the scene. When you watch the re- when you watch the outtake reels on it, it is interesting to watch them go through it a couple times. And this song is unnerving already because we know of Mitchum and what he's about to do. It's sort similar in a Hitchcock kind of vein. We get the plot, up, we get the villainous plot up front, and then the tension is involved with how is this going to unfold? How are our characters going to meet their end or their victory? And I think that the, in this scene here where Powell courts Willa and tries to start prying into where the money is, uh, is, is this, is this strange, like it's this seduction gaslighting scenario that slowly starts to unfold for Willa and Powell trying to gain the trust of John because John doesn't trust him from moment one. John is like very, very distrustful of, of Powell and you know as we know appropriately so and you know like powell tries to subvert john's expectations by going like your father told me where he hid the money <laughs> he, he 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 threw it into the river and then john just smiles like wow. like yeah you know, he's just like oh okay i got i got it i know what you're what I love, you're so right to bring that up, but I love about that moment too is for the first time also, it lets us realize that for the rest of a large sequence of the film, both John and Mitchum there, Powell and John are both winkingly performative for the rest of society. Yeah. They're the only two that know it's all bullshit that each one is leveling, whether it's to be a dutiful son, whether to be a good member of society, whether it's to be a, a pastoral preacher looking out for his flock. They both know it's bullshit. They're the only two characters that full on acknowledge it's bullshit. And yet they will perform as necessary to maneuver their way through this environment, through this construct of American tradition. Yeah. And it's a lovely moment. Yep. And the, uh, this leads to the first of a couple of big scenes. First of all, you might be wondering, where's this money hit? Well, Ben Harper hit it in Pearl's doll. Um, this will come into play in a very wonderful one shot. But uh, before this, though, Powell has already made advances to the point where it's like, I'm going to marry your mother. And it comes in the form of this scene in a narrow hallway in the house where Powell oh. goes like, well, your mother and I have made a decision. And I guess uh, and she felt it was best for me to explain it to you. I'm going to become your daddy. And. John's John is like immediately and internally going, fuck you. <laughs> like, like you asshole. And it's, 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 
it's firmly established. Okay, like this is our this is our end game here. This is this is Powell v. Chapin, Dawn of yeah. <laughs> Dawn of Where's the Money, and <laughs> and the following the wedding, we get this major scene with Willa and Powell that was that establishes what the marriage is according to Powell. One because possibly the worst wedding night in cinematic history. Oh, I'd I'd argue so. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think this is at the top. I think this is at the top. Um, you know, I mean, the bride the bride had a horrible wedding uh uh in Kill Bill, but this is a horrible <laughs> wedding night. This is see. the worst wedding night. You of see, all you that. break it up into sections and then that's where you can still keep certain people at the top of these lists. And Yes, this scene involves doubling down on Powell's view on women, but also laying into the amount of repression that is instilled on women v- through religion. Lawton, Ag, and Grubbs are unashamed and brilliantly putting the amount of vitriol and misogyny towards women in religion on its surface in a scene that in the book she's naked in the in the obviously this is 1955 she's clothed right. in a nightgown but she is you know you know you're just married let's consummate this marriage and Powell just lays her into self-guilt and self-doubt and every form of you know like you know just this amount of negative talk being thrown into her face to make herself feel judged and feel sinful and disgusting for her behavior. And this scene was the only scene that had to be, that was edited in advance. Lawton did not want to edit in advance. He wanted to lay it all out in the editing room afterward, but they had to edit this scene. Golden had to do it because they needed to get ahead of the censors on this one. Regardless of how Powell is portrayed as the villain, this scene, one, it has only one bed and not two, so already they're breaking a big rule. But number two, the implication of this comes from a sexual nature. This would have been impossible had they not gotten this out right away and tried to head this off at the pass. And when you watch it, it's also shot in this beautiful form of expressionism that then becomes exemplified later on. And I was say, yes, that, that is that first foray we have, which immediately drifts to this, to these amazing angles, the dichotomy of black and white. You're instantly taken through the own perversion of his, his own worldview into this expressionistic surrealist landscape that jars for the first time really within the film where it's so prevalent that it makes you instantly understand the staging of it, right? It's almost statuesque uh, holding by the actors and actresses in different parts that you're aware, like we talked about with that epic theater, that you're watching like a play within a play type of, of, of construct there. It's also important because it also levels for the first time also at the audience, the realization by the filmmaker, by the characters within the story of how patriarchy is so tied and mis- therefore misogyny into both the constructs of the American uh, conservative traditional family and into religion itself. So it's, it's, it's an astonishing scene. 
in a crazy moment. Yeah. Visually. And it takes us into Willa's transformation. Willa yeah. even yeah. looks into the mirror and says, Lord, oh, she look, she prays up to the sky, Lord, help me to get clean. Shelly Winters goes through not just an emotional, but a physical degradation throughout the movie yes. because of what the character instills. Amongst other things, we get a scene, a very simplistic scene of her preaching to the town about her sinful ways and the need for the town to get clean with Powell right behind her going like, yep, that's religion. And, <laughs> and <laughs> <laughs> through, through the flames. That, uh, you know, I think that there is a, there is a brilliance to this subtlety because it, it, you know, it's clearly a set. It is very clearly a set, especially to a modern Blu-ray upscale of this movie, but it doesn't matter. There's enough in the foreground and enough in the background to suggest a scene while still, you're fixed on Shelley Winters and to an extent Powell. You are not focused on, you know, what kind of wallpapers in the back or if there's any wallpaper, period. It's there to suggest this simplicity of this style of filmmaking and this style of Americana that they're approaching via whether Depression era or if you're extending into the Mark Twain aesthetic of this southern town. And within this, we also start learning about John learning where the money was hidden because we get this long shot. First, it starts with Pearl making paper dolls out of the money. What, what a marvelous sequence. Kid, that's 10000 fucking dollars. What do you fuck? <laughs> Depression era dollars. You, you, it doesn't matter. It's a paper doll. I'm going to call it my own. <laughs> and... The, Lawton has the Lawton and Cortez have the audacity to hold on this one shot of them attempting to put the money back in the doll as Powell approaches. Approaches That's, again first as a shapeless shadow yep, in the it, background. Yeah, like oh, oh, you mean like the shape, the thing that I innovated, <laughs> yeah. and a British doctor chasing around. Now, uh, yes, it is the shape essentially, and yeah. it 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 is uh, arguably. Hitchcockian tension and cross-cutting in one shot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's yeah, like, yeah. That's the brilliance of that maneuver. And this is this is Powell further attempting, amongst other things, this the the to uh, uh, obtain the knowledge of where the money is. In this moment, also, he starts really like befriending Pearl, earning her trust. Amongst other things, there's a scene where. They play a game called Where's the Money Hidden? Yeah. Or like No Secrets. And Willa starts, Willa is so removed emotionally and intelligently from her situation with the children that she can't acknowledge that something's wrong with Harry until there's a scene involving Harry really yelling at Pearl and like scaring the shit out of her. And it leads to the scene in the bed where Willa, I don't think she fully acknowledges the extent of what's going on, but she acknowledges that Powell is not who she married. Like, this is not the man she thought she was marrying. And she's laying still in the bed, realizing all the things that she confessed to that she felt guilty about. She has this awakening of the gaslighting she's been under undergoing, the religious and sexual repression that she has been experiencing. And it's all for naught because in the most expressionistic shot in the movie and the one yeah. that gets curbed the most, not just from fellow filmmakers, but also in other adaptations through television and parody of the shot of Robert Mitchum holding the knife over the bed and over her 
in this expressionistic shot that basically creates a silhouette out of the room. It's almost like, you know, I, Ari Aster has done this to great effect with Absolutely. things like Hereditary where, you know, like say what you will about Hereditary and its impact as a horror film. I know it's a divided opinion, but aesthetically it's unnerving. And this shot is unnerving that we're seeing in Night of the Hunter. Cortez has these, Cortez and Hilliard have this designed set up to make it look like this pu- like this this like single roof church and yeah, inside yes. this church is Powell and this is his sermon his sermon is the knife the sermon is dag is, is going to puncture her and mutilate her and it's within that transition there's two things that happen number 1 Powell covers his tracks by writing a note of her abandoning him and the children which it's kind of weird from a logic point that anybody in the town would believe this. <laughs> right, yes. The yes. only thing that saves it is the fact that they have been entranced by Powell at this point to the point like, I believe it, I believe it. But like, and he does a good like song and dance about like, oh, I don't know. I guess I'll just, you know, I'll just have to raise these youngins myself, I guess. And then he just, you know, putting himself on I the I did martyr. my best to save her. Yeah, just the martyrdom spectrum that he's playing into for his grand elaborate scheme. Because uh, I don't know, I don't know how far he thought this would take him. I thought, I think he legitimately thought the killing wouldn't happen until after the money. So, right. you know, it, it, he's been delayed. But the other one is, is that Uncle Bertie's fishing. Um, it's been established that he fishes, and it's also established that he can whack the shit out of a fish in a scene with with uh, Billy Chapin early on. And uh, I think the most impactful image of this film that isn't Powell related from a from having Mitchum in the frame is a shot that goes underneath. Birdie hooks into what is basically the drowned car. Uh within the back seat Willa Harper her neck slid open and her hair floating very eerily in the uh in 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 the shallow watery in the watery grave that she now is inhabiting and i again will point to burton the shots underneath of the car in big fish underneath yeah. the water in big fish are uh are directly lifted off of something like the imagery of this particular situation. And this is a boarded sequence by Davis Grubbs himself. This image is directly lifted. It would have been enough for them to describe as they do in this, in these moments that, you know, her, her uh, birdie describes it as that, like her, her, uh, it, her neck was open. Like she had a second mouth, like a second mouth. Yeah. Insane, insane to have that dialogue insane, even more to have an image of the slit throat, which you get a better, clearer picture of it with HD today. Even in 1955, this is still going to be an impactful image. It's scary as shit. And this leads to the... We're at this midpoint of the movie where it's now Powell v. Children, Dawn of Where's the Money. And we get the most obvious Im- homage to Griffith here with the iris in and out. Uh, the iris usage... Which yeah, starts, yeah. which first starts, by the way, with um, uh, another creepy song, which I will kind of lay in here in the background of Robert Mitchum's creepy ass tones. 
singing leaning 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 on the everlasting arms yes yeah this uh and it starts with him singing this uh, is he whittling wood or peeling an apple i can't remember <laughs> it's just it's it's horrifying he's, there, right he's, it's, it's... he's he's whittling something he's by the tree and yeah, the yeah. iris closes in on him as he's approaching the house and the iris closes in on the the cellar window where you see john and pearl and they're you know making agreements with each other of like don't tell him where the money is don't tell where the money is and john's like insisting to pearl like don't tell him where the fucking money is i know you're a fucking blabbermouth you gotta stop it and <laughs> and, well, and you brought up such a brilliant point earlier on is like this is also uh, a moment a catalyst moment of anxiety for for we the audience too because you're right uncle uh uh, Bertie at this point is presented as the possible other component, right, to the dichotomy of Pal. Uh, for a moment, for John, it's two dueling father figures, right? Um, one, but then, you know, and again, they're the total opposite of one another in the grand dichotomy scheme of the fluidity of this film. He's outside of society. I mean, his house, his little houseboat is like literally on the outskirts of modern society, yeah. still seen by the town. But he, like, he's an old, he's an old kook, essentially. And right, right. Just at the very end of, of like the street of the town square. Um, but also just the fact of like, his his blunt honesty uh he doesn't try to hide his drinking from john right in relation to the duplicitous nature of powell no um and so you you are led in, in a strategic bit of, of of narrative thread to think well this will be the grand you know this will be the grand dichotomy for the soul and ultimate redemption of these children and to somehow set the world right and then you see in that terrible moment where he realizes my status would make me a, su a suspect and the failure of this other masculine part of the dichotomy to save the children it's it's a great moment it's a great catalyst forward it is and um i'm going to give somebody some the the listening audience here and you you yourself in case you didn't know this although you're a wells fanatic like i am so i think you know this too um cortez shot uh the magnificent ambersons and the magnificent ambersons was ambersons was butchered to ship yeah among the endings that were originally intended for the Magnificent Ambersons was Agnes Moorhead's character rocking back and forth in a rocking chair from the despair of the situation that has befallen the Ambersons and the family. So Cortez is getting to use imagery he got to use before now being seen for the first time because Bertie rocks back and forth in that chair and you see desperation. I love this little subtle moment there. The liquor bottle that he's drinking tips over and starts tips over and starts uh draining itself onto the ground it's it's magnificent but back to the cellar though they're looking to uh hide the money and such and or like they don't tell powell where the money is but powell's like children get down here <laughs> like he he starts confronting him we get this confrontation inside the cellar which is then which turns into a powell starts really threatening John to the point where Pearl is scared into revealing where it might be. And the, uh, but before that happens, Icy interrupts it and offers. And, and right at that scene too, Zach, let me just quickly interrupt sure, here. Yeah. This is also one of the great subversive winks that Lawton makes to the audience too, about how subversively he's taking on these great tropes of religious tradition, especially through the iconography of the grand Christian tradition, right? Yeah. I mean, Powell holding the knife over John is literally, the, and it, the way it holds is almost like invoking an artistic representation through statuary or classical art of the Abrahamic 
sacrifice, right? Of like, you can kill your kid if God tells you to yeah. throughout Christian literature, right? And or going back to that earlier uh, stage of the murder of Willa, where she's like uh, in ecstasy, like religious art. He keeps framing these components of classic religious imagery with his villainous characters to subversively remind you of, of how quickly, right, um, your fervency in Christian religion may be, well, Abraham was a true Christian unto the Lord. You're also looking at a man who would just willingly cut the throat of his only child. Yeah, exactly. And by the time after Icy's interruption and they go to this big family dinner, which by the way, this 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 creepiest family dinner ever is actually, <laughs> and I, I mix this up, This this the creepy dinner follows into the cellar, which is where we get the big knife thing because that's where Pearl reveals the doll scenario to Harry. Yeah. But this dinner sequence, um, this is a moment where, according to production history, Mitchum did have to coach the child actors in a lot of respects because, amongst other things, um, Pearl was not remembering her dialogue that well, which is fine. It, I got no story out of it that Mitchum was impatient with the children by any stretch. Um, it didn't seem like he... <laughs> Despite th despite the manlish notion manish notions of him pissing on Paul Gregory's car, Mitchum wasn't a monster, um, no. and so like I think you do, but you do get to see Powell not only encapsulate his performance but also coach the children into how they're going to behave properly. I don't I don't see it as you know like you know actor abuse because. If that were the case, the outtakes would reveal something completely different. And oh I, my goodness, no! And if anything, you would even see Lawton on occasion uh, realizing that that uh, Mitchum has this sort of connection right through the, the paternal nature of how his own seduction yeah. is taking place within the framework of his character. That Mitchum has an influence also with how to help the kids through the takes. And there's many instances where Lawton like will whisper a direction to Mitchum, who then relays it to the ch child actors. Yeah. And that's and that and that's when we get into the cellar where we have Harry laying into John going like, "All right, you little fucker, where's the money?" <laughs> and oh, like oh, that the what is the, the line is like he he you know they run down to the cellar and he goes, "Get back here, you spawn of the devils!" Oh God, what's the last part of it? Fuck, like the 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 the. Uh, I can't recall. It, it it's 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 like he's it's another misogynist thing because <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> it's Powell, of course. I, I, I hate women, and uh, and uh, he he lays into John like, all right, where's the fucking money? And and Pearl goes, it's in my doll, it's in my doll, and he he has this moment of the doll. <laughs> I fucking got. Well, Lord, I'm a fucking idiot. <laughs> It'd be weird if Powell became like introspective in that moment. The, the, the fucking camera, the camera, like the lighting just peers down into a spotlight and I'm going like, I've been a damn fool. How could I not think that the money would be in as simple a place as the fucking doll? And this is where we get this intense chase scene. Yes. Because yes. the children escape the house. They make it to the riverbank with Harry Powell basically doing slasher film motif. Mm -hmm. This is a slasher mm -hmm. film chase now at this point before exactly. slasher films were, were invented. Five years later, we get psycho, which is the granddaddy of slasher films. Night of the hunter is arguably a great, great granddaddy. And the, uh, the, uh, the chase leads to the point where Mitchum follows them as far as he can into the river. But John and Pearl get far enough away and we get, 
the culmination of Harry Powell has been as such as a uh, a criminal, perverted, religious fanatic psychopath, which all of those indicators think you think monster. We th- we we generalize it as monster. Lawton has him on set. Powell screams because Mitchum screams because, oh, they got away. My, you know, like this, like motherfucker, like this has happened. Lawton hears this scream, which Mitchum said he was just showing off for Lawton. And Lawton sees it and goes like, you know what, Walter, get over here. Walter Schumann, get over here. Let's elongate this little scream. And the result is a scream from an unruly hell beast. That's the scream. This scream, which I will lay in at a certain point, whether at the beginning or the end, because it has to go with either of those places. Um, <laughs> it uh, It is the scream of an actual monster that the children are running away from. This is the fairy tale aspect of this film. For all the political, religious, socio implications of this movie that we are expounding upon this is also a fairy tale and in the fairy tale construct within the construct of of how this story is laid out you know powell is the big bad wolf and or the or, or or the the villain of this piece and the two children are escaping and the way it echoes from the way it's cut we start going into this very very elaborate dream of the children floating down the river to a child's lullaby. And if you're a modern viewer watching this for the first time and hearing that lullaby and think it's familiar, it's because the great Emerald Fennel, um, I, I hope I pronounced her name correctly. I can't remember if that's how you pronounce her name. Yeah, Fennel. Fennel. Sorry. Okay. Apologies to Emerald and me butchering her last name. She did a wonderful film from 2020 called Promising Young Women, which is a movie that has been uh, misinterpreted by male jerks. And um, Thank you. And, Thank you, Zach. And uh, she uses this lullaby and imagery of Carrie Mulligan uh stumbling away from a house in a similar fashion because Promising Young Women has a lot of brotherhood and companionship with Night of the Hunter from a visual, thematic, and technical aesthetic. And um, to literal scenes from the original film yeah, played can, throughout different Yeah, that's right, because uh, uh, Jennifer Coolidge and um, who plays the husband in Promising Young Women? I can't I fucking forget the father. Who plays the father? Anyway, they're watching Night of the Hunter at one they're point. They're watching which, Night of the Hunter. Yeah, night, yes. yeah. And, uh, but we get this dream down, this, this journey down the river. The intentional construction of this scene is meant to look like a dream, like a, like a, like, like a uh, a faraway land, like a magical land, but also steeped in the darkness of this magical land. And it's also intercut with Harry Powell pursuing the children and giving sermons along the way. That's the one shot of, the, like, the one section of this movie where I'm like, I think you technically could have cut this is, like, you're going to stop your plan midway through. I guess, actually, it might be so he can get food because it's a long journey down the river. So he's steal- not only he's conning people out of this food by going like, let me tell you about the Lord Jesus. <laughs> so never mind. It doesn't need to be cut. It's perfect. But, <laughs> but, but also that sequence um, illustrates for the first time where it is most pointedly from the view of the children, from their entire point of view. Yeah. And then you start with, like how you remember things 
from your early childhood, you only focused on certain components. And so you start seeing the entire scenery, the bill, him, the Powell himself turn into so much more of just an abstraction, yeah. right? Of, of like these little components of like these cutouts and silhouettes that represent things because of the fixation of, of the things that the children themselves were focusing on in this moment of trauma. Yeah. So marvelously constructed. And Hilliard, um, uh, Hilliard Brown openly had talked about the fact that they constructed the sets around this and the perspective on this to make it look like a dream. So like they, they pass by yeah. the bar, the barn and whatnot when they arrive at the barn that they sleep in, that it's it's intentionally looking like a painting. It's not meant to look real because to the right, children's right. eyes, it isn't real. Like they're being lulled through a dream right now. The forced perspectives where the animals feel bigger from the just by the way it's shot and angled, which is <sighs> which is combined of onset footage with the stop with the uh, second unit direction. So it's all like there's a lot of composition here uh, from uh, like uh, like matte shot and composition and we get the most, I think it's one of the most endearing images of the movie uh, from a cinematic from a cinematography standpoint is they're hiding out in the barn and John hears leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms as the horse of death is riding across this landscape. It's like an anti-Western because um, I think it was like, wasn't it? I, I don't remember if it was John Ford who talked about, yeah, it would have been John Ford talking about how you shoot the landscape. And if you shoot it down the middle or something like it does, it's not good. But you either shoot below or above. Lawton's taking that advice clearly to heart because the, the landscape is up the top. Um, and the horse is coming across in a silhouette fashion thanks to that Triax stock. And so yeah. it's it's a nightmare for John. And John has the great line, like, doesn't he ever sleep? Ever sleep. Oh, my God. It's marvelous. Right. But because at that point, too, as we talked about, it's an abstraction. At this point, Powell is no longer just misogynist serial killer. Right. He is the perversion of all that's evil with the excess of America, be it the capitalist pursuit of money in which you'd slit a kid's throat for the almighty dollar or whether it be the per, the utter um, uh, what do you call it? The utter saturation of religious extremism in the American society. Yeah. It's always there. It's pervasive. It never sleeps and you can't escape it. Yeah. It's marvelous. And, and I have a fun production fact that nobody in the, in America or in the world is aware of fun fact is that Robert Mitchum was once interviewed and said like, yes, I, I prepared by not sleeping at all. And what I did was I got some pep pills from a man named David O'Selznick. Weird yeah. drug pusher. Never, never slept one minute in his life. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I just had to get that out of my system. Yes, no. <laughs> and uh, now uh, the, the their journey continues down the river, and it eventually leads them to, amongst other things, some wonderful imagery about Depression-era uh, uh, mood and aesthetic. Um, we talked about this with Sullivan's Travels, where it is much more exemplified within an urban, uh, arguably an urban aesthetic or a city aesthetic that then extends out into the boundaries of like the rural areas. This is purely rural. And in fact, I think like the Coen brothers actually touch on this in a more comedic fashion with Oh Brother or Art Thou, where they do That's right. the image of them getting food from somebody randomly, like rations of potatoes, is a very, very Depression-era motif and feel that AG clearly writes into the script and Lawton understands how to shoot with Cortez at the back. And by the time they, you know, they're going through this Depression-era journey, their river journey ends them up in the middle, slap dab in the middle of an American pastoral 
painting of beauty. And in that beautiful painting is Lillian Gish. Uh, Lillian Gish playing the role of Rachel Cooper. This woman who has taken in children who have no home and raised them with these. This is the part where Rachel Cooper escapes me in terms of how Lawton is perceiving it, because I don't think Lawton is devaluing the 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 ethics that Rachel Cooper provides because Cooper is a representative of religion when it's practicing its ethics correctly or responsibly is what I've gotten from this every time I've watched it now I've never thought beyond it to the point of like is this the one part where Lawton is acquiescing in certain respects against the message that he is proclaiming for the first like two thirds of the movie. And my answer is no, because it is about good versus evil. Ultimately evil is representative of the construct that exists in America or specifically in religion. If, if you wanted to narrow it down to the reverend character. And I think you see this in the grand scheme of how religion is, perceived and portrayed even today in terms of the way organized religion functions versus what the actual values are and how they are butchered in favor of, you know, whatever's convenient for the people who need it to be convenient for them. And so Gish is very much a holistic, like healing center for these children who have experienced hell under the guise of, you know, uh, traditionalist religion and her ha- and her character, you know, as I said before, she feels abandoned by her actual children. And that's so right. Yeah, she- and I think that's where Lawton is still being a bit satirical with it, right? Because even though she has to go out and, and cobble together, I mean, she becomes almost like this metaphorical and often quite literal because it shows geese there, like this mother goose figure, right? This yeah. fair, very godmother <laughs> who collects these children under the same aesthetic, um, but she cannot keep her own who, as she alludes to in the mailbox scene coming up, like the moment they get their clever ideas of knowledge and education, abandon these values, right? Yeah, exactly. And she whips them into shape pretty quickly. She's just like, oh, you're fucking filthy. (laughs) (laughs) Eat a fucking bath, children. Jesus Christ. Like it's, it's almost as if she was expecting them to show up or as if like like she had met them years ago and they're just picking up after lost time. It's pretty damn brilliant of Gish to just immediately have this, you know, motherly sense of instinct. And the right. as she, you know, cleans them up and gets them, you know, properly re- reacclimated into decency <laughs> <laughs> and not having to run away from Bob Mitchum and the they amongst the scenes that I love with this is that she's telling stories to the children and the children go off to bed, but John's John's being distant from this. He still doesn't trust her. He, all he knows is that this is a place to stay and keep Pearl safe, but I don't even know if we're safe here, but right now we're here and he starts, uh, uh, uncrossing his own barriers and crossing his own barriers. And she was telling the story of these great Kings from the Bible. And she, 
after she's told them to go to bed, she's kind of just forgotten about it from her mind. But John goes up to her and goes, like, can you tell me more about what? About those great kings. And she then starts to comfort John with these stories that she almost forgot because it's second nature for her to, to expound upon this from a religious angle. And But you do also see that she is a human that recognizes uh, a sheep astray from the flock, if you will. Sure, um, sure. You know, and this is also within the time where we're learning a little bit more about the children who live in this house, but uh, the the most prominent is uh ruby ruby who is the older girl who is very desperate to be an adult to the point of uh, uh, obtaining a brooch that makes her look more adult um and they show scenes of the children going with rachel into market you understand through these scenes what rachel's situation is beyond even just the fact that she takes in these stray children you also understand that she's you know like this is this is her way of continuing to show motherly care and devotion after her children have left her to basically wither and rot um and and into one of her lines near the end of the movie they only write me when they want to tell me how much better their lives are (laughs) which i'm just like damn like those are some fucking stuck up stubborn children my friend like what what i mean i don't think rachel would have been that bad a mom but no. um, within this, Harry Powell has tracked them down. And the tracking down comes in the form of arguably, if you're going to reference Cape Fear, if, yes. if Cape Fear's if Cape Fear is going to be referenced anywhere here, it's from this moment here because Ruby uh, uh, sneaks out and goes into town. And it's established that Ruby is looking for love the only way she knows how. Now, it's established through these young boy characters that they clearly hang out with her on a constant basis and that, you know, she, she appreciates the affection. And this is where Harry Powell slithers in like the worst of predators. Yeah. And she, you know, he wants to talk to her because his goal is get the money. His goal is get the money. He's going to use her to get the money. And the imagery reflects pretty damn close to where, in Cape Fear, when Robert De Niro's character infiltrates Juliette Lewis's school and they go through the creepiest of scenes ever performed yeah, in cinema absolutely. history. And this is within this where Harry Powell learns where Ruby lives and thus where the children live. And we get Harry Powell coming up to the house during the middle of the day proclaiming that he's the you know he's the children's real father and that he's been on a search for them for year for, for for many a day many a month he starts to try and seduce Rachel Cooper with his spiel and sermon and Rachel Cooper is not having any of it <laughs> Rachel don't fuck around and it's it's clear within this that well one we get the first of many instances where Powell runs away scared um, or backs off. It, it's really prevalent in <clears throat> the scene at night. Later that night, Powell leaves. Um, and later that night, he comes back, basically lurking outside of the house. And I think this is my favorite moment in the movie, hands down. I This is not only that, Zach. I will proffer it is one of my most favorite moments in all of cinematic history. Watching it again, I just forgot 
how much I goddamn love this sequence. I love everything about it. It's marvelous. It's, it's absolutely brilliant. It starts off with well, John is John is uh, attending to Rachel at one point, but Rachel is sitting on the back porch with a shotgun in her lap, rocking back and forth like a badass grandma. <laughs> uh, and uh, you are hearing in the distance Harry Powell singing Leaning on the Everlasting Arms. And within that, Rachel Cooper starts to sing along too. Here you have two conflicting ideologies reaching to the same psalm, verbiage, song, whatever you want to call it, the same emotional connection to religion, but for different purposes. It's a contrasting situation that collides head on. I love how you you start to realize that Lawton, and I'm glad that you clarified your viewpoint on how Gish is viewed through Lawton's eyes, because that makes this scene even better for me because Lawton's laying into how the same message is then perverted or twisted into two different factions, whether that be Cooper's faction that is a little bit more pastoral and a little bit more realistic, mm -hmm. arguably, whereas Powell's is the institutionalized fire and brimstone instilling fear rather than uh, comfort and warmth. Rather than love, that's right. Which arguably when you talk about religion, and I swear this is not trying to be an anti-religious you know, discussion here so much as just discussing how religion is perverted and utilized towards diabolical means, and that doesn't take away, if you find comfort in it, I get it. You know, I'm not, I'm not made of stone. But knowing how this message is diverted between these two warring factions of good versus evil is essential to understanding Lawton's intentions in the picture. So in a lot of ways, this imagery is the definition of the movie. It also leads to the sequence where they're hiding in the cellar because Powell is clearly infiltrating the house. And she's wielding a shotgun while telling them a story. Never <laughs> 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 tell you about the time. <laughs> it, it, it is absolutely phenomenal, and it and it ends with and also so uniquely American, right? It's oh like yeah, this construct too of like yes, let us trust in the power of this of our fabulist God that protects kings from all manner of evil. But I'm holding the shotgun. Yeah, but I'm holding it's profoundly the American. Yep, profoundly American. And <laughs> Powell creeps in enough to where she gets a shot off at him and he runs away like a wounded dog and he howls like yes. an animal that has been wounded. There is contention that Mitchum did not want to do this. Lawton wanted him to do it. The first time they shot it, he did it without the yell. When they reshot it, he said Lawton said to Mitchum, Now don't forget to yell. <laughs> so <laughs> There has been arguments that this detracts from Powell's villainy. I don't think so. I think it doubles down on that monster thing. He's inhuman. Yeah, the, yes, he's already he's, uh, he, yeah. He's already screamed like a monster. He can also howl and run away like a monster too. And this this whole this eventually leads like they had to call the cops, but the cops are so far away from where she lives that it takes them overnight to get there. And by that point. Powell has, I'm trying to remember, I think he's apprehended. I believe he's apprehended by that point. 
Yes. And Powell's apprehended and all is revealed to the cops of what's going on. And they get down to arrest Powell and we get the mirror imagery of John going, no, no, no. Now, this is where you had some stuff to bring up on in regards to this imagery. Absolutely. And I think it. I, I, I'm so touched uh, again. It's, it's profoundly moving because at this point, as we spoke about earlier, John has the unique benefit, like you, the audience member, of knowing that is there a profound inherent evil in human beings or are we also manipulated by the structures and the powers of authority that manipulate us throughout? And in that one instant, he becomes just as protective uh, of a man who killed his mother, a serial killer, yeah. who literally also killed his mother. Which we should establish, by the way, that the, the police have discovered Willa's body by this point. That's right. Yeah. Yes, that's right. And he's aware. Um, but the simple fact of how protective he still gets of this idea of, of trying to elicit some sort of sympathy for how systems and authorities and governments and belief structures can imprison human beings and john's humanity in that component is so fucking touching I, i'm just so blown away by it every time and ultimately who does john levy finally he has a break and he levels his anger and his hatred at what at the money within the doll yeah take um, it, it. he's not take beating it. powell he's beating this money saying just take it look what look what it's done to all of us, yeah. to everyone. Which in itself is a commentary on greed. This is an, an, an inherent yes. commentary on greed, which you could argue that that these are themes that stem back to the silent era with Eric von Stroheim, it's a, except Lawton didn't need 500 hours to tell that story. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> Right? I, I love von Stroheim. Like you mentioned the Coen brothers who were profoundly influenced by this movie oh, yeah. and make no bones about it being referenced in several movies. But it's almost like that that um, Marge Gunderson moment too, where it's like where her recognition is not just about the evilness of the character who's got a literal leg in a wood chipper, but just about that a little bit of money I don't understand it. Yeah, yeah. And, I, it's, and that, that profound message, I just find it's so touching. It's beautiful. It's so it's so humanist of John. And I really find it this beautiful bookended moment and a real masterstroke by Lawton to combine the scenes like that. Yeah. And even in, even in all of this and everything that John's been through, he still doesn't have it in him to testify at Harry's trial. Yeah, is, and that's the final bit, right? He still won't be complicit with the system to condemn a man to death. Yeah. It's, it's so, it's so profound. And there have been, again, also the commentary, you know, suggests that there were people who were urging this bulky section of the final 10 minutes to be trimmed down where I think if you did, it would be a disservice because one, we wrap up Powell's saga and all of this, but two, we also give you the fairy tale, uh, mother goose ending that Lawton is intending. It starts off with the trial. Like they, they are president of the trial. They leave. Powell is taken into custody and, the town that had been duped is out for fucking blood. Led by the spoons with uh, a possessed fervor. Yeah, the possessed fervor of the spoons is interesting. I see 
Icy as a character is a representative of the American public in all yes. its in all its forms. Unequivocally, it can, it can be it can be seduced one minute and enraged the next, um, which has been accelerated by Twitter. <laughs> by the way, this show is brought to you by Twitter. Twitter, share your feelings. Why the fuck not? Um, and the the yeah, in this in this mob scene is intercut with. Rachel trying to get them away from that madness. And and by the way, Ruby is still pining for Powell, even after she admitted what she had done to Cooper and Cooper saying you were looking for love the only way you knew how. She's yeah. still longing for this affection that, that escapes her as a young woman. This is very, very fascinating to lay into. But my but my favorite my favorite like release moment of this movie comes from Powell being put in the back of the car. And they're going like, we're taking this one to hang. And, and the, the guy, in the, one of the cops goes like this time, it'll be a pleasure. <laughs> I know. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, you know, the, the same hangman that had such um, confliction at the beginning of the film also yeah. bookended, right? Yes, exactly. The same guy who like stares at his children. Like I, I should have gone back to the purity yes, of being yeah. a minor yeah, rather we, than to be part of the system. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't talk about that, but that hangman played heavily into the beginning because he's a, he's yeah. clearly a person who was let down by the industry of America through the great depression. And so he's become a hangman at this point. And just to see the, the joy on his fucking face <laughs> going like yeah yeah put that Mitchum up in the sky last time he'll piss on any other cause <laughs> and that's the end of Harry Powell we are led to believe that he will be uh hang me oh hang me and we get this little Walter Schumann does this little mother goose jingle as Rachel Cooper is lo- leading them off to safety like a mother goose and a marvelous shot against this urban landscape right and these shadows and this like burnt out neon component it's it's brilliant it's it's brilliant and then we get the final scene of the movie where it's christmas day uh apparently on set the snow machine was so fucking loud that every voice on that exterior is dubbed (laughs) (laughs) i wasn't aware of that you know i i i say i wish i could have made another movie where we perfected the snow machine that's the only thing i regret (laughs) I regret, obviously, the failure of this film at the box office, but also that fucking snow machine. (laughs) (laughs) And we get this scene of Christmas Day where Rachel Cooper, amongst other things, expounds upon the virtues of what's just happened, summarizing the story in kind of like kind of like how Groucho Marx does this strange interlude in Animal Crackers. <laughs> He's just like, pardon me, why I have, pardon me why I have a strange interlude. The children shall abide. And, they shall, you know, like that, that's what she's kind of doing, intertwined with the children, giving her their, their respective presents to her. John doesn't have anything to give, except earlier on he was given an apple uh, by, uh, by Rachel, and he returns the favor by wrapping an apple up, um, in one of these coaster, like, what is this? Is it like a mesh? Like, I, I, my folks had these. They're, you put them under a bowl so it doesn't scratch the tape. Yeah, right, right. It's like this hand crochet doily. Yes, like that's it. Do- Americana, right? Doily. That's the fucking terminology I'm looking for. And she, uh, he gives her the apple wrapped up in the doily. And she goes like, well, this is, this is a gift that's nourishing all around, all year round. And she says like, now all your presents are underneath the table. And... John's present is a watch and it's a sign of him having gone through this journey. He is a man. Now Ruby also gets her brooch. Rachel is not unaware that she's becoming a young woman. 
and she is allowing the children to grow. In a lot of ways, it's also Rachel understanding how children must grow up and yes. recognize those horrors of the world and also embrace the, the, the good that can come out of that growth. And we end this, they, they, the, the children will abide, will abide and they endure. And we get the ending of our movie. Well, and, and you know, this betrays a little bit of Lawton's theater roots too, because he goes just like full Shakespearean here and allows like Rachel to have this, you know, it's punctuated by this puck moment where it's basically her retelling to you, the audience, we will re-enter the reality now. You've been in a fairy tale. Yeah, that, that, that's better than my Marx Brothers analogy. That's smarter. <laughs> no, but it's, it's both apply. Well, but, but, but Groucho was doing it to stave off the advances of Margaret Dumont and the other, and, and you know, like I, 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 but yes, this, this is, this is the Lawton laying into Shakespearean theater for this, for this ending, you know, it's seen as it's, it actually goes back to the Brechtian idea of making you aware of what you're watching to the exactly. point of breaking the fourth wall. Um, and, in drama, it's hard to do, and arguably, let's let's put this on its face. It's it's intended to be drama in that point. This is mm -hmm. not being played for laughs. So I sure. think when you break the fourth wall in drama, I think it's impossible to do it today because it's only seen as something to be funny, and that and that's a both a benefit and a consequence of the genius of somebody like Mel Brooks, who has taken the fourth <laughs> wall and literally smashed it to pieces brilliantly. But as a result, when you break the fourth wall in drama, it is very difficult. I would argue that I did not like the movie Vice, but Adam McKay did a very good version of that at the very end where he has Christian Bale telling the audience, go fuck yourselves. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, right. Or even in action movies where you have Jason Statham flipping off the audience at the end to crank too high voltage. <laughs> or like Scorsese and Wolf of Wall Street. There's a number yeah. that, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Very much so. Actually, Scorsese does this brilliantly in drama. I will, let, let's, I'll, I'll back off of my. One of the few who can somewhat pull it off. Yeah, because. Right? I'm with you. I'm with you. Because you do have that scene in, in Goodfellas with henry hill going like prostitution game like or like he going like i i paid no taxes and now it's all gone and uh you know and and so by the end we we lift the curtain up that's the end of our movie and this is where we get into the uh sad realization of this film now first of all let's talk about uh uh the reception of this film from the from the uh contemporary context Obviously, as we've alluded to, this was not a success with audiences or critics. Now, there's a couple reasons for uh, the success not being had at the hands of the studio because this film uh, was distributed by United Artists under Paul Gregory Productions. It was paired up with a Frank Sinatra film as a double bill and so therefore did not receive the credibility it should have. This is... This is frustrating because this this still happens today when movies are marketed either marketed wrong or released wrong. Um, true, true. You know, like we we alluded to promising young women earlier on with the thematics and whatnot. It's a film that unfortunately should have. Uh, it, uh, COVID fucking sucks because yeah, this yeah. movie I think would have done very well in theaters. Um, pro because not just because of how polarizing it ended up becoming, but also there would have been that curiosity factor of like, we've got to go see this now. Thankfully VOD kind of helped that situation, but you also see this with, 
other drama films and such and whatnot. Like, I mean, Live by, Live by Night is not a terrible movie, but it probably suffered from being relegated to just this award season thing rather than just releasing it as an October movie and letting it have legs. So, like, the studios are always trying to hit this certain, you know, release strategy point that doesn't always work out in their favor or their benefit. And in the case of United Artists, they did not recognize the power of this film, but I would make an argument that I don't know if the audiences of the era would have either. See, um, I, I think that's exactly right. I, I, I try to picture myself that, you know, when you hear about the original reactions, which were, of course, you know, that this is, it's too arty, it's too art house. The New York Times critique is that it's, uh, quote, a weird and intriguing endeavor. Well, you, know who, that, well, you know who that and comes from, right? You know who that fucking comes from. The one and only Bosley Crowther. Just so that's exactly right. Fucking exactly. like he... But, he, he said, unfortunately, the story and the thesis presented by Mr. Grubb had to be carried through by Mr. Lawton to a finish. And it is here that he goes wrong for the evolution of the melodrama after the threatened, frightened children flee home angles off into the allegorical contrast of the forces of good and evil. Bosley, you need to shut the fuck up. <laughs> Exactly. And, but then I also, as much as I get um, instantly defensive on behalf of Charles Lawton immediately, when you think about just how poorly it was received at the time, I also must, to be fair, try to realize like, you know, okay, how exciting is it when, when you know, people that are passionate of cinemas like you and I are, and our listeners at home and our audiences, uh, when you discuss, like, like, what is the night of the hunter that we're going to be encountering still, right? What is this film that comes in and you just are like, what the fuck is this? And that is doing something audacious and groundbreaking and weird in the best sense of the word that we are also failing to recognize, right? I think that, well, I would, well, and, and, and part of me wonders because like, because the market has changed so much to the point where independent cinema has, I feel like, I feel like cinema at this point has been sectioned off into quarters that That's people right. take, right. Take the, plant their little flags on and go like, this is cinema, this is cinema, this is Marvel, blah, 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 blah. And to me, it does relegate the widespread appeal that can be had by one film that engages a conversation. I feel like, I'll take it back to Promising Young Women. I wish that those sections of film fandom weren't so quartered and divided because a movie yes. like that would have been seen by that. When I first saw that movie, I had a problem with the third act only because I didn't understand the shift right away. Cut to a day later, I completely reversed course because I thought yes. about it and I had time with it. And a lot of that has to do with the way Fennell homages Night of the Hunter. That scene is the transfer point, and I wasn't grasping onto it right away. My first impression was like, oh, that's cool. They're referencing Night of the Hunter. <laughs> <laughs> and then not thinking about the, the logistics of, of what she is doing. Um, but like also like, you know, I think that Paul Thomas Anderson is a filmmaker who who gets this kind of recognition for innovations within what he's doing. I mean, the master has evolved over time um, sure. and been latched onto as a point of like, you've got to see this. It's it's not there will be blood. This is not this is something completely different. Um, you I think that. I think that you know. I think traditional filmmakers uh, from the set, the American New Wave aren't making those particularly 
like savvy films anymore. I love The Irishman, but I don't think it was going to ever be perceived as anything but what it's been perceived as. Um, I think it would have been difficult for people to understand that it is technically groundbreaking. Um, I think, I think, I think it does really come to the bottom line of, you know, what, what is the audience looking for in innovation in cinema? And part of the problem is, is that cinema is evolving into a different beast that it needs to, but it also hasn't defined its lines yet. We haven't defined where our limits lie anymore because there's also things that we pull back on now, but there's also things we move forward in. So there's a tug and pull that I think needs to be defined. It will be defined over the next couple of years. It's not going to happen today or tomorrow. It's going to happen, you know, a year or two from now, um, especially given like, where does streaming fall into that? Where does theatrical experience, how does the film watching experience impact on this? For the Night of the Hunter, it's a benefit because this can play in any environment. You can stream this on Criterion Channel. You can watch it if a house decides to revive it. Um, because theaters are open now, you can start doing that. And it's available on Blu-ray. And so long as you buy that, by the way, before Amazon decides it doesn't need physical media anymore, because this movie <laughs> right, is owned right. by MGM, uh, once you do that, you will have it forever. So please go to Criterion.com right now, get copies of Night of the Hunter, and just make sure you've got it because I don't know what the fuck the, will happen to it next. That's true. Um, but, and, and it's such a perfect analogy, what you said, too, because we're, we're at this moment of a crossroads, too, between, as you, you pointed out exactly right, by the way, about like this um, segregation into various uh, fan camps of, cur- of personalized curation um, you know, we, we forget, too, that in 1955, when this film is from, it was also at a moment in, uh, of where the, the American viewing audience in terms of entertainment is about is at its own catalyst moment. It is also about to split between television and cinema. You are at the ending point of, 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 of the last breaths of the studio system. You're about to enter in within just a decade later the advent of the American new wave. Yeah. But television is the component that begins to strip away the audiences into these two camps, right? Yeah, and and also, you know, th- a lot of this also has to do with, I, I, part of this does have to do with marketing. Paul Gregory did say that, like, in, in his words, absolutely no money was spent on promotion. United Artists didn't have the muscle, desire, or intelligence to handle the picture. <laughs> um, and they, he initially wanted to roadshow this, which probably would have made made some sense um, because it, you, when the executives are saying it's too arty, well, then that's your solution. You do it that way. Um, right. You know, like, I mean, and roadshows, roadshows have been, have been iffy these days, depending on who you have. I, I would argue that Red State was successful with its roadshow because that was, that was gutsy. That was gutsy what Kevin did to do that. Exactly. Um, but roadshowing the hateful eight, I think that was more to capture something of an aesthetic of the how the West was one, you know, mad, mad, mad world. So that was more for the 70 millimeter effect. It doesn't take right, away what right, right. Quentin did with it, but it is a different scenario. So roadshows, right. I think, are seen in two different camps of weirdness. And but marketing is important for this. When you're double billing this with a Frank Sinatra movie that has no like <laughs> That 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 is straying away from the flock of what this film is. It detracts. Like you can't you can't put this film in a similar camp as another film like None But the Stranger. Like you can't do that. And the 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 reviews on this film, by the way, like you know there is the the I think that 
I think that people were getting the first glimpses of what was going to change. And the reason why it's similar to the reason why Psycho gets the mixed reception it does. Because Psycho is a is a double down on it, but it's less vitriolic or like thumbing your nose at it because Hitchcock found a way to turn that thematic innovation into a commercial property. That's right. that is what it did. I mean, like, and you can look at this as like Peeping Tom comes out the same year by Michael Powell. And it's a movie that is like far more audacious than Psycho visually. Um, but it is thrown in the garbage by critics right. and audiences right. of the era. Um, but Hitchcock found a way to do things that Lawton and Powell were doing and commercialize it. And also Hitchcock, rightfully so, knew when to pull back in certain moments. That's um, right. As did Lawton, but Lawton is also much more vicious. And I think that that's the difference in this film. You have the, the Variety staff critics sum this up. The relentless terror of Davis Grubb's novel got away from Paul Gregory and Charles Lawton in their translation of Night of the Hunter. This start for Gregory as producer and Lawton as director is rich in promise, but the completed product, bewitching at times, loses sustained drive to too many offbeat touches that have a misty effect. It, that would be fine except for the fact that those misty effects, which I'm assuming are alluding to the pastiche that's involved, are essential into telling the thematic story of this. And also... It's it's bold of you to say that it gets away from Grubb's novel when Grubb himself is is directly approving of this imagery and this is Grubb's imagery, so they didn't even know that Grubb's was providing storybook pictures for exactly. Lawton to utilize off of this. So it's kind of crazy. Um, and what's more, remember when we talked about censorship? Well, the Legions of Decency gave this film a B for banned because it degraded marriage. And the Protestant Motion Picture Council rated it objectionable, saying that any religious person would be offended by it. Uh, this film was banned in Memphis, Tennessee, so AG's hometown couldn't see it and go like, hey, there's a boy James, hooray! <laughs> uh, by the city's head censorship, Lord B Lloyd Binford. Oh, God. Binford and uh and Great Britain Great Britain rated this film as adults only Ooh, scandalous so it wasn't like an uh, like a like a uh, uh, uh like an H for horror like this was a flat out like just adults only yeah. um so they didn't like completely neglect it but they're just like hey I may want to leave the kids at home for this one and uh yeah Lawton was crushed by this yeah, that's the great tragedy here, Zach, is just how it it utterly devastated Lawton himself. I mean, we bemoan a lot within like the cinematic community, even of like, and I know we're both we're both fans, but even of like the the premature um, devastation and breakdown of of an out of the gates um, auteur like like Wells, whose star burned out way too soon. But in Lawton, it is his first foray. And he is so crushed by the response, by the way it was handled, by the misinterpretation of his vision, he never makes another film again. Yep. And within that, a lot of his uh, collaboration with Paul Gregory uh, goes out the window as well. Yes, yes. I mean, it, it is a devastating, tragic moment in American cinema. Yep, it is. And it, it's almost, uh, it, it's, 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 a, it's a dismal end for... Lawton because seven years later he would be checked into Cedars of Lebanon Hospital in July of 1962 um, thinking that he had ruptured a disc in his back and he had surgery for the collapse of a vertebrae 
which then revealed the cancer of the spine that he had been suffering from this whole time. Um, and he fell into a coma and died at his home on the 15th of December in 1962 from renal cancer. Um, Lawton, Lawton has a large legacy that extends beyond this film. Obviously, he is a known actor. Um, you know, when you think of Mutiny on the Bounty and you go, Mr. Christian, come <laughs> here! That is Lawton. That is, that, is, that, is, that I think is what he was known for to the public. He was known as an actor. At the time that he made this movie, the thing that I do have to keep in mind is that Lawton was not as prevalent in the public mind as he once was. That's another factor in this. That's right. And even Mitchum continuing to be uh, to to have a steady career over time. You know, I think that the I think that the the ultimate villain of this story is United Artists in the respect of not knowing how to handle the release of this film. When you put no money into the marketing, when you don't make awareness of the piece, when you double bill it up the way you did, the only way it's going to find an audience is on television. And thankfully, the new wave filmmakers of America found this film. Yes. Um, this film starting off as a cult film for small groups of fans that would, and this film was playing at museums and revival houses across the sixties and seventies. That's right. One of the great art house discoveries. One of the first. Yep, exactly. Not, not too dissimilarly from how um, previous episode freaks was discovered by the new wave and a different audience of film that reevaluated bold and audacious art, whether interpreted correctly or incorrectly or re uh, reappraised and sure. re, reclaimed in the name of the people it represents because freaks is freaks is complicated because i understand how the counterculture latched onto it but when you understand the history of that film it, it makes the sure. message difficult of course, of course. <laughs> it's a good movie you should watch it but it's difficult <laughs> for more see our episode where we talk with Smokey about it we were both very very uh we, we were very very cautious when walk talking about that film <laughs> But this inspires a slew of filmmakers. This is the 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 and artists in general. Um, the uh, this is one I never knew about the the Riptides, uh, an Australian band. The uh, lead singer of it, Mark Callaghan, parodied Mitchum's character in the music video for the 1982 track "Hearts and Flowers." Um, and the uh, the but the filmic legacy of this film. Uh, you mentioned the Coen Brothers. Uh, the, uh, the big Lebowski saying the dude abides. Abides. Yep. He abides and he shall endure. <laughs> and, uh, the, I think that the one thing that, uh, from an aesthetic choice, if the Coens are lifting from anything, you, you will know that in true grit, the two, 2010 version of true grit in many ways mirrors the loss of innocence in the form of the character of Maddie Ross. The Coens took Portis's novel, um, removed a racist asshole in the process. But, well, he was yeah. already dead anyway. <laughs> I, guess the, I guess that doesn't count. But no, the Coen brothers took Portis's original novel and they adapted that more directly. And they weren't even really contemplating the John Wayne version. 
and they tell a story about innocence lost through Maddie Ross's eyes, not too dissimilarly from how Charles Lawton portrays the children in this film and their loss of innocence and gaining of trust for that matter. In a lot of ways, you could make put Night of the Hunter and True Grip back to back as a double bill. That's a double bill that works. That's a real double bill. That's a double bill that works because it extends on themes and the uh, the 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 the. the the, the impact of it will be felt because you will see it side by side and you will understand that even the imagery that Deacons performs in that piece, there's a horse riding off in the distance on an upper plane, but instead it is subverted into a force of good. Right, right. And also filmmakers have utilized different moments and themes from this film, not the least of which is Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing in 1988. 1989, sorry, um, where Bill Nunn as Radio Rahim tells the story about love and love and hate against the song Fight the Power, um, which is a great song to have on repeat. And it's as if, though, Sal was wrong to do what he did. <laughs> no, it, well, and you said it perfectly. The fact that this legacy can, can be felt immediately, not only through through the inspiration of, of amazing filmmakers, like, you know, from, from as eccentric as like Fassbinder over in Germany to... Altman in America to Spike Lee, all the way up to, I think a lot of people, there'll be a whole generation that discovers the iconic legacy of Night of the Hunter through uh, Sideshow Bob. No, no, that's, yeah, let's, is iconic. let's talk about, let's talk about that for a second, because we don't get to talk about the Simpsons enough on this show and, <laughs> and how brilliant they are. But the Simpsons has referenced Night of the Hunter in several different ways, whether through incidentally or directly. I sent you a clip of Rod and Todd singing, bringing in the sheaths. <laughs> And I and I po- I posited to you this might be scarier than Harry Powell singing it. It was very close. Yeah, but um, but the uh, but yes, the Cape Fear episode from season five of The Simpsons featuring Sideshow Bob, the uh, the the on the surface intent is to parody Martin Scorsese's Cape Fear, which was a which was a pretty big hit, like for for nineteen for the nineteen ninety three uh, nineteen ninety one audience. So, you know the the film itself lends into night of the hunter territory and you have again you're seeing you're seeing through bart's eyes like the (laughs) the the impact of a killer and the the the, his loss of in well he's lost this innocence a couple of times bart does but i think this is the most on its surface like going from simple 10 year old boy to dealing with a murderer because this really is the first episode where sideshow bob is intending to kill bart um and sending him all the letters with his own blood. Use a pen, Sideshow Bob. And, <laughs> uh, but yes. It's actually pronounced Zach the Bart. The. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> Farewell, Snake. May we meet again someday. Go. Farewell. <laughs> and uh and you also and and you get the and you get the cape fear element of it and you get gilbert and sullivan at the end of it it's, it's a wonderful romp of a ride it's one of the best episodes of the show ever conceived hands down um but yes uh we alluded to cape fear obviously scorsese is a huge fan of cape fear he will never stop telling you about how much he loves fucking cape fear i fucking love it i fucking love it and he actually is instrumental for the UCLA preservation of this film because he is part of the Film Foundation. Film Foundation is an important organization that restores these classics. So if billionaires are listening, instead of buying another jet where you can take it off to some nonsense island, why not give it to Film Restoration? And um, 
and or and film discovery because there is a documentary now in the works along in conjunction with a journey to finally find that missing print of magnificent ambersons which i'm not gonna lie probably doesn't exist but if it does if it does <laughs> yeah if it does never say never things pop up all the fucking time while you're at it try to find the silent film featuring the marx brothers called humorisque and um but yes, and also the most recent adaptation of Night of the Hunter into modern work is Promising Young Women, which absolutely, uh, I I think it is a another. Actually, you could do a triple bill of this True Grit and Promising Young Women because I think actually Fennel presents the modern interpretation of this film because of the fact that Carrie Mulligan's character. As our, she is already starts off disillusioned and rightfully so. Then she's lulled into that false sense of childhood and uh, childhood security, and then it is immediately shattered. And the way Fennel does it is through that same lullaby that plays as the children are lulled off by the river. Absolutely, and, and not only thematically, but also a filmmaker like Lawton himself, Fennel has the audacity, this shocking audacity to just openly in your face subvert audience expectations and what we've been conditioned within different genres to expect and her her bravery in doing that right into your face is is just absolutely brilliant yeah. i would go to see this triple billing tonight you and i would go right now yeah and immediately watch all three films yes and this is and also i'm not gonna lie the marketing of promising young women was not great was dismal yeah because that that movie sold a revenge movie and it is a revenge movie but not the one they sold not the uh, one that people anticipated i re i did not read a single review before going into that film i walked in blank because that was our movie of the week for real nerds and i was expecting what the trailer sold me um and what from the first moment of what happens it still subverts you up into the point where she's talking to the christopher mintz plus character and that's when you realize what's actually going on and it's just like man like okay I guess I understand now why critics are fucking taken aback for a second, but that's also why she deserves that fucking Oscar that she got. Exactly um, right. And exactly. So yeah, Night of the Hunter has never lost its legs. It's still with us to this very day. It remains one of the most influential pieces of art to ever exist. And what's more, this is one of the greatest Criterion Blu-rays you will ever receive because you will, you will get even more information than Jack and I have even been able to provide because you get a commentary, you get thesis thesis statements by Simon Callow, you get a making of documentary that one of the original MGM DVDs had, and you get the super extensive Charles Lawton directs that shows the outtakes from this film with an introduction by Leonard Malton talking to the person who helped collab uh, put together that particular film. So, so to sum it up, Jack, when we talk about Night of the Hunter, we've already talked about where we've seen it today and whatnot, but how do you see this film carrying on into the future, um, like even beyond what we've already discussed? How do you see a future generation grasping onto this film? Yeah, I really, I, I think I'd have to leave it with a legacy that not only, as you mentioned, through through amazing critical uh, you know, critical reevaluation, not only from the American New Wave movement, but from our... Uh, brothers and sisters in cinema abroad, right? Worldwide, other cultures and other, and other uh, cinemas throughout the, the world have recognized the genius of this film. So much so that, um, you know, everyone always talks about the infamous uh, sight and sound polls of the rankings of, of the great films and that, and that whole entire exercise. Well, yeah. the great uh, French 
uh, a critical composition there, which is translated as Notebooks on Cinema. Their great tradition of ranking film as late as 2008 actually ranked Night of the Hunter as the second best film of all time behind Citizen Kane. Now, I, I, I think that uh, Lawton would not be unopposed to being second place to Citizen Kane. I think you're right. And I think that that, that type of legacy will just continue to build for it. It is a masterpiece, Zach. Um, it gets better with every viewing. I have to say that every time I watch it, I'm able to derive something from it. And I think it's going to be studied and influential for generations to come. And I want to thank you for having an examination like this of this film on your podcast, which is not only meant to go out to the converted. I realize much of this audience is already the converted for the films of this era. Yeah. In that sense of discovery that we championed earlier on, if this podcast in any way has allowed you or influenced you to go see this film, um, evangelize it. Uh, we want to tell the audience out there, share this film with someone else, right? We want this to be disseminated in the greatest possible fashion. Well, because be as if 2020 weren't horrible enough with COVID, yeah. it also marked the announcement of an attempt by Warner to remake this film. Yeah. The, yeah the, so here's the, here's the thing on that, I will say. I'm never opposed to remakes. I, I'm I'm fully aware that this is this this has been here since the birth of cinema. It's not going anywhere. If they remake Night of the Hunter, I would encourage the studio behind it to not just rely on its name. Market this properly properly. Get a director who understands what this piece means to people. And if your attempt is to draw it out further beyond a 90 minute, I would argue like the big change would be it'd be longer than 90 minutes. That's the big thing I think would change. Um, but also we talked a lot about Bob Mitchum and him pissing on cars. Mitchum was a genius actor who provided the evolution of a Bogart. I would argue um, oh, the tough yeah. guy stature that Bogart represents um, in his toughest roles Mitchum provided that Mitchum had vulnerability, but Mitchum became a definition for the tough guy and using that energy Lawton got a villainous performance out of him that has stood the test of time. Whoever you get to play Reverend Powell, you need to try and match it. And you're not going to get Daniel day Lewis out of retirement from making dresses. So you've got to go another route somehow. And I do feel that, when it comes to this film enduring, you know, I, I we brought up Scorsese, we brought up Lee. They're never going to not mention this movie whenever they get a chance to. The Coen brothers, too. But, you know, Tim Burton's become a punching bag in the last couple of years, arguably through his own doing. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, but I, I will defend Tim Burton from an aesthetic point because there is aesthetics in this film that start off in an inspiration point from Caligari onward that Burton took and turned into his own version of the subversion of the loss of innocence, utilizing Gothic imagery as the juxtaposition in a nuclear family setting. You can't discount Burton as an artist, regardless of his recent output, because he did introduce an entire generation to that concept, whether it was through Edward Scissorhands or Beetlejuice um, or uh, uh, Sleepy Hollow and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, you'll talk to him. He'll say like Hammer Horror Films and Vincent Price and whatnot. 
I'm sure you could get a Knight of the Hunter spiel out of Burton that would be just as eloquent, albeit awkward, but eloquent as uh, any of the filmmakers that you listen expound on openly. And I think that people will discover this because it's a name that echoes. It's like Citizen Kane. It's like Casablanca. It's like Gone with the Wind. But Knight of the Hunter is one that is also not spoken of as frequently. And so when it is heard, it piques your interest. This is a film that still captures people's attention in some form or fashion. And I was honored to talk with you about it today. Um, Really quickly, Jack, tell people more about where we can find you and your coming adventures. Well, first of all, I want to thank you again, as always, talking to you about film. It's it's second nature with our relationship. Uh, it is always a privilege to come on your amazing shows and and just and just to do this. It's my favorite part of, of any time of the year when I get the opportunity. So thank you for having me. Yep. Um, to your audience that listened and endured us uh, sharing our love so passionately and enthusiastically, in that same spirit of discovery, if this film brought greater insight and move you. If this is one of your first times discovering this film, um, we urge you like Charles Lawton to go back and explore the films of uh, 1930s German expressionism. They're marvelous. Um, it, it'll open your eyes to an entire new way of seeing things. And on the, the, the onset, you said this so greatly, Zach, about, um, uh, about Mitchum's declining years and that authenticity of, of um, like, you know, the, 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 the perennial tough guy but then having the vulnerability later in life to be able to show the inevitable ending of such a person, I urge your audience, if you've not yet discovered it, to check out what I think is his greatest performance for me, um, which is The Friends of Eddie Coyle, Peter Yates, 1973. Um, a marvelous, a marvelous film, and I think a beautiful swan song for Mitchum's late ending career. So in that spirit of discovery, I hope your audiences go out and try to discover more bits of cinema with all of these players. Yeah. And you can see Mitchum, Mitchum, Mitchum's filmography extended into 1995. And you, I think that when you, when you discuss his, or I'm sorry, 1997, I should say, because he uh, was, uh, playing the role of George Stevens in James Dean live fast die young. <laughs> oh really? Was that his well, wow. But yes, wait, you can see him like you know, he's in Dead Man the um uh, uh Jim Jarmusch film. Yes. Um and uh, but yes, he actually returned he he was the lead villain Max Caddy in uh the original Cape Fear. He returned as Lieutenant Elgart in Cape Fear the remake from 1991. Um and so you can see how he evolved and grew over time from that tough guy persona, the, you know, and he, he held behind the legacy of these, uh, uh, these, this tough guy role to the point of starring in what would have been a John Houston starring role. Um, the, this is, this is where the story becomes really interesting for Mitchum is this is kind of a tease for John Houston, but, John Huston was declining by the late 80s. His last film would end up being The Dead. His son Danny had his directorial debut set up with a script that John himself wrote with James Costigan called Mr. North. And when it was aware that John Huston was in decline, he was urged, he urged Danny to reach out to Bob Mitchum to take the role that John would have played in the event that John could not do it. And 
basically Danny Houston got him to do it under uh, the auspices of complimenting him <laughs> and whatnot. And, uh, you know, and, you know, John alluded to like he may not be able to do it. And then Danny said like he agreed to do it. And he's like, I knew he fucking would. <laughs> <laughs> Bob Mitchum carried on that carried on that spirit of his fellow camaraderie and tough guyness uh, with Mr. John Houston, regardless of how we see these tough guys today through a new and more open and intelligent lens. There is something about watching Mitchum act like an asshole that you <laughs> cannot get away from. And the I think. Yeah. And you're and I think that you when you listeners you need to listen to superlatives and you need to be listening to the upcoming uh history of you in five films by jack because he is going to open up your doors even broader than this show does this show is intended as an entry point for golden age hollywood jack's going to take you farther beyond because even if you're not into golden age hollywood but you like movies in general jack's going to be a good resource going forward he is he has opened up my eyes to a lot of influential world cinema that opened up my borders. And I hope that he does the same for you. And I hope you do give his stuff a listen and by all means, look out for his critical evaluations that come forth in the coming months because he has stuff in the, in the pipeline for that. And I'll announce it here. Look, look forward to, we will be doing addendums with Jack. He's not done here on the Ballyhoo. One of the things that we discussed off mic and partially on mic earlier is we want to talk more Night of the Hunter. We're going to be talking Charles Lawton directs in a special Ballyhoo presentation where we will be going through these outtakes and discussing the directorial process. Um, and also, you know, it's pretty much confirmed you're going to be involved in John Houston. We just need to find the perfect movie for you. <laughs> well, uh, uh, Zach, let me just finish by saying this. Um, you are such an incredible resource for, for cinema, for all your listeners of the podcast, for me personally, for everyone that we know. You're our by far favorite guest that ever makes an appearance on our little podcast. And um, uh, much like in the spirit of the great heist movies all the way up to um, Army of the Dead, uh, like Morty would say, you just mention any podcast and you son of a bitch, I'm in. <laughs> fucking meme <laughs> son of a bitch I, mean, I i hope that's how people have taken to heart casablanca because i'm just like it's the story about humphrey bogart killing nazis son of a bitch i'm in <laughs> <laughs> so yeah that is thank you jack again this is going to wrap it up for this uh this wonderfully beautiful discussion on night of the hunter you can find more about us at yesteryear Bally or at um at ballyhoo review podcast.com uh, we have more in the tags for you to find us. You can also write to us now via Gmail at ballyhoo-review-pod at gmail.com. Uh, on the on the upcoming episodes, we will be talking again with Ryan Johnson about two weeks in another town. We're going back to Vincent Minnelli, Kirk Douglas territory, and Eddie G's along the way. Um, we are going to be talking about Eddie Cantor in a movie called Show Business with Pam Munter, author and uh, film historian. And we will also be delving uh, further into uh, the world of film comedy because one of the next episodes you're going to be hearing is with a special guest, the host of John of All Trades podcast, will be joining us to talk about W.C. Fields, a oh, wonderful drunken alcoholic mess. But W.C. Fields left behind a wonderful laugh legacy that you are going to enjoy. And within the coming year, you will be hearing a discussion of Andalusian Dog with me and Laura Leibowitz because we got to talk some surrealist shit. Uh, but until next time, folks, good night.
This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Ballyhoo Pod and on Instagram at Ballyhoo Review Pod. That's R E V U E. Our theme was composed by Maddie Ghost. Be sure to check him out on Twitch for more of his music. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Be sure to watch his YouTube series, Chewing the Scenery. This is Zach, signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification. 